My name is Brett Arnold, at Brett Redacted on Twitter. I am here with at Rock Marooned, Jesse Hassinger. Hello, sir. Hello. I'm also here with first-time guest, friend of mine, comedian, Nick Naney. Hello, sir. Hey, how's it going, friend of mine? Hey, <laughs> you're here. We're all friends. Jesse and Nick are meeting each other virtually. It's... Hello. Hello. Hey, Jesse. Hello, everyone. We are here. We are gathered here today. Um, you just heard the, the sounds of Mr. Sandman. Yet again, you heard that on the episode of Hot for Halloween 2, and I was just as lazy as the producers involved here. I used it again, just like they did for Halloween H2O. Uh, there it is right there. We're talking about Halloween H2O, a.k.a. Halloween Water, <laughs> a.k.a. Halloween 7, I guess, would be the number. It was once called Revenge of Laurie Strode. Mm. It was once called The Two Faces of Evil. We will talk about all these other drafts. I have all the inside info. I watched all the bonus features. I am fucking locked and loaded and ready to talk about this movie. Nice. I feel like it's Halloween two and a half is what I would call it. Oh, wow. Ooh. I love that. Oh, um, 2.5. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In the tradition of uh, the Lion King. And yeah. I can't, I can't <laughs> right. think of any others. X-Men. Didn't X-Men do that? X-Men or? did a special... I feel like that was a... DVD edition called yeah. 2.5 yes yeah and there was also a Spider-Man there's also 0.5 Spider-Man right. that yeah. are just like extended editions sure oh and Jackass <laughs> Jackass that's true yeah gotta bring back the decimals for movies I think that's gonna be that's gonna be what pe brings people back to the theaters after the pandemic is over is the decimal sure, yeah. so get some decimals no more quarter measures only the old, half measure. the old guard <laughs> one and a half <laughs> uh, so we're here to talk about Halloween seven. And all in all its glory, 1998, I believe, is the year of this movie. I'm excited to hear about Jesse's history with the movie. I'm excited to hear about Nick's history with the movie. We'll get to all that good stuff in due time, my dear friends. Uh, before all that, there's a bunch of news to talk about in the world of horror, as well as just cinema and theater going, because that has become a, you know, uh, it's the zeitgeisty topic these days amid the horrible pandemic that's getting worse by the day that we don't talk about here on this escapism podcast <laughs> about horror films and all things tangentially related to horror and the horror lifestyle. That's all the spiel I have to give for now. Jesse? The only mask we care about is William Shatner. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I do I do encourage everyone I know when they go out to wear a William Shatner mask. It's the only, I think it's the only way to be really, truly safe. We yeah. also endorse the Don Post masks from Halloween 3, the, mm, that's the pumpkin yeah. and the witch, and there's a third thing, a skull. What I is believe. that song? Halloween is... Uh, happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Halloween. Right, right, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, Silver Shamrock. Right. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a new Flesh theme song podcast that uh, apes that. Oh, my. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> we got it all going here. Um, that's enough shop talk. Jesse, what's going on in your world? Not too much. I'm, you know... Uh, just watching movies. I've been watching. I watched like 15 movies this week. It's, wow. It's, okay. Uh, so <laughs> talk about the ones that you think would be interesting to our audience, sir. Uh, the I? one that I, that is kind of marginally a horror movie. I don't know, Brad. I don't know if you watched this, but it was uh, Run on. You know on, what? Which is on. I meant to watch it before this episode, but I didn't. So uh, you've already talked about it. I want to say on here, didn't I, you? No, no? I don't think so because I I just watched it like on this oh, okay. week. Like I've, I don't think I've spoken to you since I've. Yeah, since I definitely made the that up then. <laughs> it was a movie that screened at that festival, one of the horror online festivals I attended. That's why I thought so. But uh, I think that well, was my old guest Tom Phillip who saw it and said it was a, either a two and a half star or a three star movie. What's your? Yeah, take? it's that's about right. Two and a half stars is about <laughs> right. Uh, I actually really like Searching, which this filmmaking team made, uh, the John Cho like internet movie. The desktop. Yeah. That's a good one. Yes, yeah, with the Deborah Messing. One. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like it was like a classy unfriended. <laughs> yes, that's true. And I, I unfriended for your parents. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's an unfriended that more people can enjoy. Um, and I, and I did like it. I mean, I'm 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 because I'm a dad, I guess. I like I I was this is a nice movie, uh, but this one I feel like it's weird. I I found um, searching had a pretty strong verisimilitude and as far as that kind of thing goes i mean like they have to stretch a few things to kind of keep it on the on the internet but like they did a it's pretty naturalistic yes and this one i think just ends up on the wrong side of ridiculous um is it it, is it this is it some high what's the premise of this thing the the high concept it is kind of a high concept it's um it's a young woman in a wheelchair um that's pretty high concept yes so so um (laughs) played by a new uh a newcomer who I thought was really quite good and who is, is herself is in a wind is in a wheelchair. Uh, and she is, has some other medical problems and she, uh, Kira Allen is the actress's name. Who's very good in this. Uh, and she has a very close, she is homeschooled by her mother played by Sarah Paulson, who that might tip you off that she's maybe a little intense. I think you mean Ryan Murphy presents Sarah Sarah Paulson. (laughs) That's you're kind of getting to the the uh, the meat of what uh, what what I find off putting about Sarah Paulson, much to the chagrin of my poor wonderful mother who loves her. Um, <laughs> she's always like, you never give her a fair shake, and it's true. I don't. I just don't like her. Sorry. I, like, I, is it because she's married to an older woman? Is that no, why you don't like no, her? That's good for her, and good. I liked her in, um, in the OJ movie, I thought, or show, whatever it was. That as Marsha Clark, I thought she was very good in that. Every time other, other other time I've seen her, and the problem is that I first saw her on Studio sixty at the Sunset Strip, and there's no coming back from that shit. Um, <laughs> Matthew, the Matthew Perry vehicle. Yes, she played the like. She was, was that a Sorkin? On, yeah, that yes, was. Uh... She plays on. She plays a, a kind of a riff on Kristen Chenoweth, who Aaron Sorkin has, has imagined is the type of person who does sketch comedy, and. <laughs> It's she was just, the I mean, Liz so, Lemon of that show. Ah, yeah, she was like, yeah, she was like supposed to be really. I would say like her character. Am I speaking with two people who've watched Sunset? <laughs> I have never, six, I've never seen it. Every I just, episode. I, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, she's supposed to be like the kind of Gilda Radner, Amy Poehler, like sketch comedy dynamo. Except the only person of those who, of the only person who is uh, Aaron Sorkin has met in that tradition is Kristen Chenoweth, notable <laughs> Saturday Night Live cast member. Right, Kristen Chenoweth. 
so it's like trying to have someone figure out Gilda Radner through the lens of like, but but how would Kristen Chenoweth play that? I mean, like, I no no offense to Kristen Chenoweth, it's just like it's just a completely tone deaf performance, and it's completely Sorkin's fault. But it, it, whatever, he ruined Sarah Paulson for me forever. She's the mom in this. Part of the problem to me is that like you know pretty early on because it's Sarah Paulson that like if something's not right, like where that's going to come from. She's Nurse Ratched. <laughs> yeah, exactly. TV's Nurse Ratched <laughs> from the most beloved telling of that story. Um, I've got to anyway. say, my mom who listens to the show, mm-hmm. big fan of Ratched, mm. texted me several times that I would love it. And I think that's oh. because it's very bloody at some point. Mm. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, if my mom didn't watch it, I'm sure she will. She likes American Horror Story a lot, and that's, I think, where she gets her love of Sarah Paulson. So this movie, uh, 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 Kara Allen, uh, play, so she's, like, starting to figure out maybe something is not as it seems with the relationship with her mother and sort of her her own kind of life as she's understanding it. As she's sort I, of in a- I don't want to get into spoilers, but it just, yeah. from your talking about it, it seems very similar to, like, What's that thing that starred Joey King on Hulu that had, like, Joey King and Patricia Arquette or whatever? The, I didn't see that, but... It, I, it was, like, the Munchausen syndrome hmm. thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's kind well, of what this movie re- sounds there's, like. There's, like, elements of that. You know, I won't spoil what actually happens. Uh, I will say there's, like, some good little, like, suspense set pieces. I mean, these filmmakers are good at generating suspense, but there are just some times in this one where it just felt like, okay, this is ridiculous like mm. what what is happening just the actual like one, one question physical. is it is it better or worse than the hbo show run <laughs> what a great question because uh both i guess i don't really? know it's, wow. not as, it's not as good as the uh like first Am I speaking episode? with two people who watched hbo's I run did, i did i watched like the first five episodes of run and, uh, how many are there? I feel like everyone I know gave up on it, though. I would, yeah, I, would I gave up. It was. Based, I think there based was, on what I watched, I would say there were two hundred of them. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel bad. My my wife genuinely enjoyed that whole show, but the that show just went way off the rails. Like the the beginning of Run, like the first episode or two, is is probably more compelling than this movie. But this movie never goes as far off the rails as that show does. Mm. So it's kind of a wash, I would say. Yeah. I mean, if you have Hulu, it certainly is like a you know ninety five minute pot boiler with some well directed suspense sequences and a very nice debut performance from Kira Allen as this like plucky young woman in a wheelchair. Um, I think she's really you know she could definitely I could I look forward to seeing her in other movies uh Sarah Paulson I'm less I'm less interested in seeing well don't worry movies. she's pretty busy with the Ryan yeah. Murphy universe yes. she seems yes. very much firmly a tv actress like yeah not, like she doesn't yeah. seem to have like a movie quality to her at all she doesn't she really she does have the kind of, I think that what I liked about her in the OJ Simpson deal is that over the course of many episodes you sort of drill down a little and you kind of like mm-hmm. you know spend some time with her and you there's like it goes beyond her sort of her wig yeah it goes beyond the wig and uh in this movie it she doesn't really have the chance to do that i mean you know i didn't have a terrible time watching it and my wife watched it with me and and thought i had a pretty good time with it so i don't think it's i think people seem to like it and it's well judge it judge it on this scale for me it was supposed to be in theaters wasn't it yeah and you know what i will say like just on kind of a craft level Sure, this is a theater movie. It's not a glorified TV movie. That's that's good uh, to hear because yeah. I just watched so, oh, Bad Hair, 
which uh. which what which not a bad movie. I kind of liked it actually, mm-hmm. but it looked like TV. And so many of these Hulu things. Well, that was another one that was supposed to be a movie, but it was yeah. wasn't it directed by the guy who did Dear White People, which is yes. like now a TV show. Mm-hmm. When it, even though it started as a movie, and it just looks like television. And yeah. I appreciate that this sounds at least like it looks like a movie. Yeah, it's you know, it, it, even I though didn't... Searching didn't really look like a movie and it's, was a movie. No, it looked well, like the computer. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was you know that was the effect thereafter, and this one it, it does like I feel like the kind of craft in terms of how they use the camera when they go in kind of tight and leave stuff off frame and sort of find things in the frame by doing a pan or you know doing like pans and stuff like that. That's all pretty good. It's just like the kind of baseline ludicrousness of it keeps going up and up, and it and it's it, it doesn't it didn't one hundred percent work for me. But you know it's not a bad way to kill if you have Hulu and you like thrillers. I feel like. Sure, give it a, give it a whirl. Okay, I like that review. Anything else worth mentioning? No, I've just been. I was. I'm gonna do. I'm doing a podcast uh, with my friends about Robert Zemeckis, so I've been like dipping in and out of a bunch Ooh. of his movies. <laughs> oh, right on. Um, did you watch anything worth mentioning this week? Well, last night I rewatched two very fun movies: uh, Enter the Dragon and uh, The Silent Partner, which are. Both great. Are those both Bruce Lee movies? No, no, no. The Silent Partner is an Elliot Gould, Christopher Plummer, like bank heist movie from '78. What a pairing! How did that pairing happen? Uh, you, you bought the the Bruce Lee set. Yes. Yeah. Criterion, and uh, baby. I did. I I had some friends over. We were all wearing masks, and uh, <laughs> and we. I can. Con- uh, he's wearing a mask right now. That's true. The microphone is pressed right into my mask. Uh, <laughs> just so everyone is a. Is aware. Uh, what else did I watch? I watched. Uh, uh, oh, I watched some Cave Sahedi movies. Tell me more. Uh, he's this uh, Iranian American filmmaker. He makes a lot of like very personal like documentaries, and he made this one called "I Don't Hate Las Vegas Anymore," where he basically goes to Las Vegas with his father and his half his teenage half brother. And he tries to get them to do ecstasy with him <laughs> to to become closer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Ultimately, not like a very good film, but it's just like an interesting like uh, deconstruction of like his relationships with these two people, especially with the teenage half brother who like really can't stand him. Oh my god, and that sounds entertaining. Yeah, he he has a lot of like documentaries like that where he wants people to do drugs with him, and they don't really want to. <laughs> <laughs> and he he also had a show he had a public access show on Brick in Brooklyn called the show about the show and every episode is about the making of the previous episode <laughs> and he like shares very intimate details about his like marriage and stuff and also his marriage kind of like crumbles through the making of it, it, the it, whole the whole show's available on YouTube I highly recommend anybody watch it it sounds very like performance already like yeah wow that it's, sounds very fascinating yeah i i highly recommend it where do you watch those uh all this stuff basically all this stuff is on youtube i think nice he has like one documentary that ifc put out like in 2005 called i am a sex addict that you could probably rent uh, online but like e- almost everything else is available just like in full on youtube right on yeah so what was his name again Cave sahidi Perfectly easy to spell. Everyone figure that out. <laughs> um, what did I watch this week? Not a lot worth mentioning. 
Um, except for I rented, I've been on a Frank Henenlotter kick lately because uh, I think I saw brain damage for the first time and thought it was great. Mm. And I, I had seen Basket Case in college and thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. These, you know, schlocky 80s New York gory yeah. movies. And then I rented Frankenhooker a few weeks ago and thought that was great. So I finally got the one I hadn't seen, which was his most recent movie from like 2008 called Bad Biology, mm. which it, the opening line of the movie is a girl saying she has seven clits <laughs> and how she like basically she fucks guys has crazy orgasms and mm-hmm. then immediately gives birth to a baby two hours after having sex always and then she just like leaves it like in dumpsters and shit criterion so, put this out <laughs> yeah this is a criterion unrated <laughs> edition um uh, I, uh and basically it's like a love story between her and this guy with a with a massive unwieldy cock great <laughs> um a monster <laughs> penis um, so God, I, I really miss New York. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that movie's called Bad Biology, and if you like Frank Frank Henenlotter movies with, you know, brain worms mm-hmm. and uh, parasitic craziness and all that shit, you'll definitely enjoy it. It's definitely lower rent than the other ones and mm-hmm. has like a lower acting quality than even the ones in the '80s did. But I definitely enjoyed it, and there's some crazy like cartoonish puppeteering with the 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 dick. And um, I also have to say, have you started watching How To with John Wilson yet? Yeah. How To with John Wilson is the most unique thing I've seen in a long time. It's pretty great. I don't know how to describe it other than it's a guy with a camera walking around New York just filming what he sees. And he fashions them into episodes about New York people and New York things. Like there was an episode about scaffolding in its entirety. That was great. And it goes into like... He meets a guy who is obsessed with the Mandela effect, and that mm-hmm. sh- episode veers off into like go into a Mandela effect conference and what those people are like. And um, every episode has been a joy to watch. There's one that shows too much of a man pulling on his penis and talking about parasite and talking about parasite, <laughs> a man pulling on his penis trying to get his foreskin back. Right. Um. But I I've said too much already. Um, <laughs> how to with John Wilson is an enjoyable show despite everything I just said it's really great and I need everyone to watch it so it gets picked up for another season I c- it cannot have cost them very much money to do um, and uh, now I will jump to the bits and pieces segment of uh, this podcast which is the news I will jump right to industry news before we do horror news so Wonder Woman 1984 which was like the one big release left on the the release calendar for theaters it's still on the release calendar but it's heading to hbo max the same day as uh it's debuting in theaters on christmas so this is kind of like a seismic shift we've been talking about how the window has been shortening between the theatrical uh the theatrical window between theatrical and like dvd and uh, vod but uh, and like the most recent thing we just talked about was Freaky, which is a 17 day window, which was like much hullabaloo at Universal to get that done. And now here we go with uh, who makes this movie? Who makes Warner Brothers? Warner Brothers yes. makes yeah. this movie. So Warner Brothers is saying fuck it and putting it out on HBO Max and in theaters, which I don't even understand how they're going to do that with with their deals with the with the movie theaters right now. Maybe Jesse can explain. But I, yeah, tell I think me more. It's, it's I mean I don't know a ton about it, but I I got the impression that they kind of did a deal as a one-off um, with whatever chains 
because it tends to be the chains who object to that, right? Like yeah, the indie, indie like, theater, yeah. smaller theaters have already been showing, sometimes showing movies that are on Netflix day and date with the Netflix debut. If they, yeah, that's how I saw uh, Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago Seven in the movie theater <laughs> right. in New I mean, Jersey. I guess, yeah. I guess some of those, some of those, they gave them like you know a little bit of a window, but smaller than the chains usually demand. I don't know if they, I don't think they worked out a thing for Warner Brothers to always, you know, going forward, assuming that it'll be on HBO Max. But I think they sort of worked out a kind of good faith deal, and I believe the theaters are getting a bigger cut of ticket sales because of this. Um, and it really amounts to like, you know, who knows how many theaters are going to be open on December twenty fifth? It's really hard to say. Like Regal is already mostly shut down most of their locations i cannot AMC's... believe the amc in new jersey city or new jersey city is still open right now and showing yeah. like come uh come play and uh you know nothing good the santa wow. claus is playing right now really yeah, yeah they're showing yeah. old stuff for like five dollars and no one's they'll going. be showing they'll be showing the crudes uh the crudes you know, too when, yeah when that opens uh next next just this coming wednesday and uh it seems and so i know some of the amcs they're all still doing the uh, private rental thing that Barrett and I experienced at Cinemark. And I think Cinemark, some Cinemarks are still open. So I think, you know, this is going to amount to like maybe a couple thousand screens on a, for a movie that normally would have been like 4,000 screens and maybe even fewer because some States I think may do bigger, you know, I think Chicago has, has like the music box has vol- voluntarily closed. And I think some States, the, have, the States have stepped in and said, no, we're closing all theaters and gyms and stuff like that. So it's, I think it's, it's, the theaters must recognize that they have no idea if they're going to be able to be open in a month. Um, and if they are, they'll be allowed to play Wonder Woman. And, and there is a little bit of a weird kind of, not in this country, but there is a kind of a exclusivity window. I believe theaters uh, overseas, although they're also experiencing a spike, maybe not as bad as us, um, will be getting it, I think, earlier than the 25th. I think the 16th is when it rolls out into some theaters, at least. I think it's ah. going to play China in a, in, a, in a big theatrical release, which they have high hopes for making some money off of that. Um, so it'll so, be on torrent sites before it's even out in, in America. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and like the HBO Max thing is kind of a way of, you know, it's like, well, yeah, if it's on torrents, but like at the same time, is there anyone who's going to be like, I have HBO Max, and I'm not going to watch this on HBO Max because I got not. I mean, I'm sure people will watch it on Torrance, on Torrance but like it, they're giving, they're also going to make they're it. They're giving available. it away. They're not even yeah. charging extra for it. Exactly. So I, you know, that kind of neutralizes, I assume, whatever like ten days worth of pirating they might get off of it. Um, and people so, yeah, forget, weird... like you know, when X Men Origins Wolverine leaked online like seven months ahead of when oh, it was yeah. supposed to come out. That was a big deal, and then the movie still opened huge. So like, it's yeah. it's it's negligible. I just hope they don't. I don't see any spoilers about Wonder Woman dancing to Cindy Lauper before I get the chance to see it myself. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it would be brutal to have that spoiled. Yeah. It's it's a you know it's a weird. It seems like the idea is to just be more flexible in the future, and that you know they're still going to probably aim for these movies to be coming out. And it really it does kind of feel like. They, Warner Brothers is willing to sacrifice some of their pretty lucrative theatrical business in favor of driving people to streaming. Like they just haven't really had the titles like to do that so far. And obviously this is like a huge title. Um, and like, you know, if, like that's, I, I'm excited. I wasn't, wasn't going to be driving to New Jersey on Christmas to see this movie. So I'm, I'm you excited. You will watch to, it on HBO max. I, well, you know, I, I'm hoping to write about it and get a screener, although it's going to be the already kind of, bummer uh, uh, prospect of watching like a kind of big widescreen fun brightly colored comic book movie on my TV which is fine but then like 
add to that. Oh, maybe I'll get to watch it with like a giant watermark over. Yeah, with your email <laughs> address plastered my, across yeah, it. My laptop hooked up to my computer because there isn't a Roku thing for it. Um, although actually, I did use the Warner Brothers screening app, app for. Um, yeah, I watched for the Scoop. King of Scat Staten Island on. Oh no, that yeah. wasn't them. Maybe it was. Universal does that. Does a pretty good job uh, with yeah. those, and Warner's Warner's did do a pretty good job with the, the one for Scoob. So maybe it won't Scoob. be terrible, but it's still, you know, I would rather see this movie. Like if if I could choose i would probably choose put the movie out in the summer and i can go see it maybe for real but yeah I and so would think, i but... but i'm excited to, to see it now and like i appreciate the feeling that they're saying look this is a bizarre situation we can't just like push back every single movie into next summer because next summer it may not even be better and next summer it, it's going to be super crowded so like I mean, as of someone who really loves the first Wonder Woman movie, I'm excited to watch this movie, like, in a month instead of, uh, you know, in 6 to 12 to 15 months. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And I was definitely scared at the prospect of, like, the initial, when you heard this news, it's like, oh, God, theaters are going to die. Look, everything's, like, <laughs> horrible. But it really is, like, a Band-Aid situation and not, like, yeah. a massive change. They're just putting this one movie out to drive a bunch of subscribers to their service which it will do it's going to be huge for them uh that'll make the you know the, the the stock price go up it's like a smart move while also being a kind of safe move yeah it's it's kind of a bummer for those of us who really love the movie theater thing yeah I would, like it I would scares me a little the i guess the the idea that people seem to be moving towards is just something that's a little more flexible in the future where if a movie opens below a certain amount or just doesn't do the business they were hoping or just isn't doing that well Studios will have the option to basically flip a switch and say, "Okay, it's going to be on VOD in two weeks." Yeah, what did than... I who, who what did I read about the fifty dollars fifty million dollar threshold? Yeah, it's like I think some of the I don't know if this is an official in the contract or just kind of a guideline, but the idea is like if a movie opens to fifty million dollars, which is still a fair amount of money, even though it's not as you know. I remember when I was a kid, that was like the biggest opening ever was fifty million dollars. It's now still it's still like a sign that your movie is is connected in some way. Uh, if a movie opens above that threshold, which is to say theaters are doing pretty well with it you're not going to like put it on the studios aren't going to say, okay, well, we'll see you on VOD in eight days or whatever. Like they'll, they will let theaters play that one out because it indicates a certain demand. If a movie is not doing as well, they may say, okay, well, it gets a couple weekends in theaters and then, then it switches to V to like a, probably a, you know, a $20 VOD or something. And maybe it'll make more money that way. It is. I mean, it's a dangerous game to play because it's really, you know, it's going to increase the kind of haves and have nots like a movie like Wonder Woman, you know, when Wonder Woman three comes out, like it doesn't matter that the second one was on HBO Max. The third one, if movie theaters are back in a, in a big way, the third one will do really well. But like movies that aren't about superheroes or Star Wars is are going to be like in bigger trouble than ever. And in terms of like, you're, you know, your your window for seeing a movie at the theater that, that isn't a huge hit is now like, well, in New York, it's still like a month, but most places it's like, you know, two or three weeks or something and that's just going to get more unforgiving as this goes on like something like and not in a great movie or anything but like something like king of staten island like that would have the, the, the switch would have been flipped on that one like real fast and it would have been booted out of theaters as fast as can be all to make room for like six more screens of whatever the big comic book movie is so there's like you know but on the other hand like those movies will be pretty accessible to a lot of people so i don't know it's it's a weird mess of a situation but it is clear that this is going to change it, i don't think it's going to kill off movie theaters but it definitely is going to shift around like this is the, there's not really going back from this i don't think you say oh, okay well now now everything just comes out in theaters as much as we can now like that's clearly not where they're going yeah any any uh 
anything to add on that, Nick? How do you feel about movie uh, going to the movies nowadays? Uh, you went and saw Tenet. I saw Tenet in a Connecticut theater, and I've been going to drive-ins. But uh, oh, drive-ins. Yeah, I've been going to this one. Well, I was going to this one drive-in and uh, the Mahoning drive-in in uh, Pennsylvania, which is like three hours away by car. And uh, I've, I've been seeing a lot of like horror movies there, and that place rocks and has given me, you know, what little hope I, I have, uh, I guess. And uh, but yeah, I desperately, desperately miss going to the movies. But I, I am very excited to. Get very stoned and watch Wonder Woman on Christmas night. Yeah, so I'll, I'll say the, that. In the comfort of my own home. Yeah. <laughs> Not uh, surrounded by uh, people in Captain America shirts, so that'll that'll be nice. <laughs> yeah, that is a plus. Uh, the other big horror news this week, or I guess this is the first big horror news, because the other one was not horror news, unless you are scared of movie theaters closing, like me. Uh, Lynn Ramsey, the director of such acclaimed films as We Need to Talk About Kevin and rat catcher rat catcher yeah. and what's the one with walking phoenix the title i always butcher you were never really here yes uh, yes um, she is about to direct a stephen king adaptation oh wow of the girl who loved tom gordon wow 1999 stephen king book that makes a lot of sense yeah so uh she's come aboard to direct village roadshow is adapting christine romero the former wife of uh george a romero is producing with it producer boy lee Vertigo Films, published in 1999, Tom Gordon tells the story of a young girl named Trisha McFarland who gets lost while hiking with her mother and her brother in the woods. Nine years old and scared of the dark, the girl winds up stumbling through the woods for days, wandering farther and farther from civilization, even as she tries to make her way back home. As she walks, dehydration, hunger, and exhaustion cause her to hallucinate, causing her to talk to her idol, a baseball player named Tom Gordon. But she also begins to believe that she's being stalked by a supernatural beast, and soon her ordeal becomes a test of both her sanity and her ability to fight for her life. Uh, sounds like Lynn Ramsey's going to crush that shit. Yeah. I read I read this book like when I was a teenager I think and uh, yeah I it, it's definitely it, like a lesser title but it you remember it being good I I I was I was pretty into it and I could definitely see a lot of like Lynn Ramsey elements to it I think yeah she's for sure gonna is is Stephen King becoming like his own kind of like genre basically like kind of yeah I mean there's been we've been talking about king on this podcast you know we've been doing this podcast for five years and there's been dozens mm -hmm. of king's movies uh happened since then and announced since then it chapter one and i guess chapter two made enough money too but like the the it being huge really sparked another wave of all these announcements happening yeah there's all these hulu things there was castle rock there was right the 11 63 it is it's a it, stephen king is a genre at this point and he's not he's not stopping he's still writing he puts out at least a book a year yeah just look out for those vans i guess I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh there's another predator movie that was just announced yes. oh, wow. Fuck yeah. so dan trachtenberg who did 10 cloverfield lane and um is just like a guy on twitter to me honestly i forget what else he does he, i think he did like black mirror episode a really good one the playtest episode um, but he is directing the fifth installment in the Predator series, and he tweeted this was meant to be a surprise. I've been working on this for almost four years now. Very sad that, that I am very sad that what we had in store for how you could discover this movie will no longer happen. It's a bummer, but also yay. I don't know what that means at all, 
They were probably going to do like a Cloverfield type reveal of it. Yeah, that's probably think? true. Yeah. Since he's the man behind the last. Well, not the last Cloverfield movie. I no, always forget no. about the Cloverfield Paradox, which was unceremoniously. That was terrible. Not, not unceremoniously. Very ceremoniously. Yes, ceremoniously dumped. Extremely yeah. ceremoniously dumped on Netflix right after the Super Bowl. And I watched it and was appalled. Me it was too. incredible. <laughs> um, I actually didn't hate the last Predator movie, which was made by Shane Black, even though a big part of the plot involved Jacob Tremblay being like autistic and having special powers to connect to yeah. the Predator people. <laughs> that... That part didn't work for me, but uh, that was dicey. But I, I'm with you. I liked that Predator, that Shane Black Predator movie. I thought Olivia Munn was really cool in it. I thought it was funny. Oh, it's like got some gnarly Predator shit in it. I, I liked I, it too, and I think I if just you like the Predator man, I think he's just cool. Two he's, stars. Sorry, I thought it was better than the Rodriguez one, which I really didn't like. Oh, like, get out of here, Adrian Brody You're one. Crazy. I haven't seen They're it good. since. I haven't seen it since opening day in theaters, oh. but I remember really not liking that movie. Anyway, this one there's no, there's really nothing known. Except the script is being written by Patrick Asen, whose producer writer credits include the TV series The Kingdom, Jack Ryan, and Treadstone. Treadstone is the TV series based off oh, of right. the Bourne movies. That, do you think that uh, that the Predator is involved with Blackbriar and such? Yeah, do you think he's on Chems? <laughs> <laughs> the Predator, the Predator Chems. I can't wait. Oh, I'm so excited. I don't. Whatever fucking bullshit they put in a Predator movie, I'm just, I'm just into it. I don't care. You're a mark. You, 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 you will eat it up. Uh, so this is the fifth one. It's hard to think that there's only been five. Count to well, even... it's, that's, it's five if you don't count the two oh, yeah. Alien versus Predator right. movies, which, which why I, wouldn't you? Why would you? Those movies suck. Well, they don't count. I, <laughs> I, I guess like, they do, but... I feel like they're in the weird paradox. This is the Predator paradox, I guess. I would say they count in Predator and don't count in Alien. <laughs> like, <they're, laughs> you know what? I, ex- I accept that. With the with the predator vibe, but they're not really with the I, alien. I remember vibe. kicking kids out who snuck into AVP Requiem when I worked in oh, the movie wow. theater. I snuck into oh. that. It was me. I kicked you. I <laughs> you kicked Nick out. I, 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 I saw Walk Hard and then I and then I snuck into that. Ah, I remember. There you go. You paid, paid for the right one. I, I'm, right. I'm going to show how much older I am than you bastards. I my uh, best friend and I took our then girlfriends uh, to a double date to see <laughs> Alien versus predators colon requiem right after christmas and they both married us anyway so wow, i think wow. it, it turned out okay considering how much we all hated that movie yeah it's a really bad well i should i should have mentioned when i did the walk hard and then snuck into alien versus predator requiem i was a fresh college graduate so oh okay yeah. you were, it wasn't for the r rating it was for the uh it, it was, was just for the, yeah the extra it second was just movie. yeah it was just movie oh, hopping yeah. my walk hard story is that i went i probably told us on the podcast before but it was the day I got the job at the Evanston movie theater and there was a private screening at 7 PM and I asked what it was and they told me it was walk hard. And I was like, can I, will you let me buy a ticket to it? And they were like, sure. I don't care. And I bought a ticket to it. Turns out it was a promotional screening that they had forgotten to promote. So there was a zero people in the audience oh my and God. it was just me and my dad. Uh, and we saw it. It was literally just us. And they took our cell phones and put them in like an, a manila folder. Oh and like as, there was a whole there were more security guards there than there were people. Wow. So me and my dad saw that movie like really early and had a great time with it and told everyone it was going to be a huge hit. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it bombed horribly, but it is fantastic. So we were, we were right about that. But uh, yeah, good shit. Sneaking into I love sneaking into movies. That was the best. I wouldn't kick you out for sneaking into a second movie, but if you were under age and I was told to kick you out, I would do it. But I would <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't seek them out. I'm not a narc. It's only happened. <laughs> I've only got kicked out once in Manhattan 
when I tried to sneak into American Reunion. They had <laughs> so like, funny you they said had that, heightened dude. security for that movie. Yeah, because horny kids won't love horny. them at the American Pie series. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. My other story I was about to say is I kicked out of American Wedding. Oh, you did? <laughs> I, I, I no joke. My other memory is like that's the one where. Like the guy took us to the guest services desk and made us call our parents to come oh get us. Oh my god! Because <laughs> we got caught. I think it was more than one time sneaking into American <laughs> Wedding, That's and the other see. yeah. And I also had to see Last Holiday, the Queen Latifah movie, because I bought tickets for that and tried to sneak into Hostel in two thousand and four mm. or five or six, whatever that was. And they had a guy at the door, so we just had to sit. It. We just went and watched Last oh Holiday. My god. <laughs> you you took your punishment. Uh, I was my best friend and I were booted out of the movie Desperado because wow. we went to we went to go buy tickets and we just you know our, the mall movie theater was usually pretty lax yeah and the uh, the woman at the ticket thing was like my friend went first and she's like he's like one for Desperado and she was like are you seventeen uh, and he was like no <laughs> and she was like well you can't do that and so then. He left, and then I was like, but I was next in line, so I was like, um, two for Desperado. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, "Are you 17? And I was like, "Yes." My friend, my best friend's also like a full year older than I am, and he was like uh-huh. probably a month away from being 17. Uh-huh. I was a month and a year. Uh, so we, so she gave me the tickets. Oh my god! And then they, uh, they like let us in, and then but some concession person like clocked us as being underage and followed us in, and we're like, "Excuse me, can we see your IDs?" And then they, we I used on. to see the Saw movies at the movie theater I ended up working at for years. I used to see the saw movies with my cousin who was not of age but mm-hmm. like a couple years older and we would just buy tickets i think maybe our parents would buy them and we would just go in with them and mm-hmm. they would not tell us give yeah there's a theater shit. that had that policy in my town i yeah. love that policy yeah. also there was a one screen theater in my hometown that now is like a they do stand-up comedy there and stuff it's the skokie theater um when the Matrix Reloaded played there, I called on the phone and just asked. I'm like, hey, I'm 13. Can I see this movie? And they were like, sure. And <laughs> my friends and I just came. And they let us see it. It was the, thir- the third Matrix movie, which Lucky was really that. disappointing At the uh, also. There was a twin theater in my hometown. And when Bride of Chucky came out, me and my friends bought tickets to the Parent Trap. And we kept like saying we were, uh, we kept like being like all right one of us go out and see if that guy is still at the concession stand if yeah. we could sneak into Bride of Chucky and the whole movie we just kept doing that like seeing if he was out there and of course he was still out there he's at the, <laughs> yeah he's the, selling where else would he be you know <laughs> and then see if he went home <laughs> yeah and then it took me acing a math exam for my dad to take me to see Bride of and then me and my my oh. dad took me to see Bride of Chucky. It was like a near empty theater. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, yeah. My da- my memories with my dad are hip- making him take me to see shit like that. Yeah, uh, I don't remember. I don't think I definitely remember getting Bride at Blockbuster on VHS mm-hmm. and having to like hide a copy because my parents, my one of my parents wouldn't let me do it. And then my dad took me back and I hit it because it mm-hmm. was a new release and I knew where it was and I was like, <laughs> let's get it now. And I would I would do some crazy shit. But I do remember him taking me to Seat of Chucky in 2004. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I felt bad for that one. But in hindsight, that movie is actually super good. And I just didn't understand. Like, it was like a very queer movie made mm-hmm. by Don Mancini. Yeah. And it's like, it's really interesting and funny. Um, did not, uh, however, you know, 13 year old me did not appreciate it as much. <laughs> Nor did my father, who took me to such <laughs> films as Clerks 2. <laughs> and uh, he mostly fell asleep. It was fine. Um, more news. Sorry, we're getting really derailed here. 
Deadpool 3 apparently is happening between Marvel Studios and Ryan Reynolds, and they have tapped uh, a person who follows me on Twitter to write it. Oh, wow. Wendy Molneau, who writes for Bob's Burgers, uh, and her sister, I think, uh, Lizzie Molneau, are writing it. Uh, writers' <laughs> meetings have taken place over the past month with Ryan Reynolds. Um, I think there was people worried this wasn't going to happen because of the Disney deal. Is that a thing? Yeah, there were there was some question about whether Disney would be on board with a R-rated movie that is at least nominally within the continuity of a Fox franchise that they're trying to put to bed. Um, but you know, I I, I like the Deadpool movies well enough. But I'm mostly just delighted by this because even though I'm sure they'll probably try to throw in some like MCU stuff and kind of divorce it even further from the Fox X-Men movies in my heart, it just means that the Fox X-Men series <laughs> so often considered to be dead after dark Phoenix, after the mutants, etc., will live on essentially. Yes. I mean, like it's going to be Deadpool three. It's not going to be Deadpool rebooted. Maybe it will be. Who knows? I never but, saw two and I really did not appreciate the first one. I mean, I just, if you don't like the first one, you're not going to like yeah, the second one. Yeah, I mean, I think I've said it on the podcast before. Like, I don't see the comedic value in, like, yelling chimichanga. I, I just, I don't understand it. You don't understand the twisted mind of Ryan Reynolds? <laughs> America's funniest comedian? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 21 Jump Street team. We know them. What are their names? Uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Right. They are reuniting with Channing Tatum to do a universal monster movie. They haven't wow. said what it's going to be. It's a mystery monster movie described as a modern-day tongue-in-cheek thriller inspired by Universal's classic monster legacy with uh, Channing Tatum will star. No news is known, really. Plot details kept under wraps um, about which beloved character will focus on. Yeah, like The Invisible Man, it's supposed to be a bold genre reinvention of one of the studio's most beloved characters. Who would you like? Fan casting. Who do you <laughs> want to see Channing Tatum be from the Universal Monster Universe? Bring back the creature from the Black Lagoon. I was going to yeah. say, yeah, that, was, that, would be my, that would be my choice. Give him some Jupiter Ascending style humiliating makeup. Um, and yes. make, I think he would be kind of a fun creature from the Black Lagoon. He's like an affable guy. And the Phil Lord, the Lord Miller guy would do that well, too, I think. Yes. I think those guys are good. I don't know. Yeah. If that I think whatever they do, it's going to be say. good. Yeah, they're yeah. great. I like yeah. those guys. Uh, the Last of Us is finally actually becoming a TV show at HBO. It's been officially greenlit. It's uh, Chernobyl creator Craig Mazin is attached to write and executive produce, along with Neil Druckmann, the writer and cr uh, creative director of The Game. Uh, love that game. Played them both. I don't really play games to, the, to, the, to their conclusion often, and I played both of these games, so I feel uh, like I will probably be disappointed by the show. Isn't that what happens when people like the source material mm -hmm. and things? Yep, yep. Uh, so I look forward to being upset by that. Um, Paul W.S. Anderson's Monster Hunter yes. is apparently going to open on Christmas Day. Did you hear this? Yes. <laughs> on IMAX screens and regular screens if they exist. But uh, this will not be on HBO Max. This is just in theaters. <laughs> I, hope what? They, I hope they make that the linchpin of their ad campaign. Not on HBO Max. <laughs> they Monster sh Hunter. They Come should. What is Monster Hunter? I've been told it's a video game adaptation, but I, I don't know what that is. I feel like even if it wasn't a video game adaptation, Paul W.S. Anderson makes everything he makes becomes a video game adaptation. That's I feel true. like his Three Musketeers must have spontaneously... There must be a game. It. Yeah, like a game. He Boy must have willed into existence a Three Musketeers video game. Um, yeah, it is a video game. A I don't Capcom. know much about that. It must be like a super old game. It's a Capcom video game. The movie stars, of course, Mia Jovovich 
and Tony Jaa and oh, uh, wow. Ron Perlman and Megan Good. I like this cast. Wow. Um, yeah. In theaters Megan in December. Good. Wow. Megan Good mem- from uh, Waist Deep. Right, yeah. <laughs> from Waist Deep. <laughs> yeah, Amazing. that was my poll. Anchorman 2, right? She was in that. Yeah. Was she? I don't yeah. remember that movie at fucking all. Oh, man. She's also she has a pretty fun brief part in Brick. I think that's that's. that's oh, that's right. true. She's yeah, really good yeah, in yeah. Brick. Yeah, I like that movie. She's good in Anchorman too. I'm gonna say it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Alexander Aja, horror guy behind such films as Crawl, High Tension. Love Crawl. Yeah, Crawl's great. Mirrors, not great. Hills Have Eyes remake, not bad. Piranha 3D. He has a new movie coming out. It's horror. It's called Elijah. It follows a young boy who invites a mysterious man into his home, believing the stranger to be the key to saving a sick mother. As increasingly disturbing things hap- uh, start to happen around his home, the boy soon realizes that the sinister stranger is not the savior he claims to be. This is written by Corey Goodman. Or no, it was written by the last witch hunter scribe, Corey Goodman, but he sold his pitch and then Aja came and directed it and it was rewritten by a collaborator of his named Gregory Levesio. Uh I liked Crawl. I like yeah. this wily French guy. I like that. Oh, speaking of movies my dad took me to that he shouldn't have. High Tension. In theaters. <laughs> oh, man. In theaters, dubbed. Remember they put that movie out dubbed? Yeah. There was a time when movies came out dubbed. Yeah. And it was weird. I remember there when Life is Beautiful came out. Do you remember there was like an ad campaign that was like, finally, in English. And they like... That's so funny. Yeah. I don't remember that, but I definitely saw that movie, I think, subtitled. Yeah, I saw, I saw it subtitled, theaters. but yeah. then when it won the Oscar... Ah, did finally it win the Oscar? in English. It did finally win, didn't it win Best English. Picture? Am I wrong? It didn't win Best Picture, but it won... I think Roberto Benigni won... He won Best Actor, and I think Best he won Act. Foreign Language. Yeah, that's film. when he, ju- language, he jumped yeah. all over the chairs at the Oscar ceremony. Yeah. Much like the playful nature of the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> that portrayed in that film. Um, not sure how that movie holds up, but I definitely liked it back at the time with yeah. my family, who also liked it. Uh, I'm just thinking of all the funny movies I've seen with my family. I remember I made them see Running Scared with Paul Walker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's another one. Um, all right. Last bits and pieces here. Uh, we know a little bit more about the Dexter revival on Showtime. Oh, shit. I didn't even know about this. It's coming back. Set 10 years after Dexter Morgan went missing in the eye of Hurricane Laura, the revival sees the character now living under an assumed name in a world away from Miami. That's all we know. And Clyde Phillips is back as showrunner and says, so far as the ending of the show, this will have no resemblance to how the original finale was. It's a great opportunity to write a second finale because everyone fucking hated it and it was the worst ending to a season ever. Uh, But... Uh, Margo, Marco Siega will be directing six episodes of the ten-episode Dexter revival coming to Showtime, uh, p- presumably next year. Uh, Showtime, to me, is just famous for taking a good thing and beating it until it's not interesting anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, Weeds went on for way too long. Mm. Dexter went on for way too long. So, it doesn't bode well for me, but... Uh, Willing to see, willing to give it a shot. We'll probably watch were you it. you were into you were a Dexter head. I was a Dex head. Yeah. I liked it. <laughs> uh, the guy who always said motherfucker, Dokes. Remember right, Dokes? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a fun show. Um, last bit in peace is that Scream Five is officially done filming, and it's has what's a re- it called? I gotta know what it's called. Uh, <laughs> it's Scream gotta be some crazy title, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, sir, it is just called Scream. Oh my god. <laughs> Much like 1990 uh what? 6? Is it I always forget if it's 5 yeah. or 6. It's 6. It's 96. Six. Okay. So uh it's just called Scream. 
it's film it finished filming i believe it has a release date of january 14th 2022 it's directed by the radio silence guys who did uh uh, re- uh what's that fucking movie ready or not which oh, i wow. did enjoy um so looking forward to that and uh, i saw that right before i got married oh <laughs> that's uh because she's the bride that the the the, the, the did that uh, influence your decision to propose yeah <laughs> well, no, I had already proposed. <laughs> It'd be funny if you <laughs> yeah. had it. I re-proposed like, after I saw that movie. <laughs> Let's go explode together. Yeah. Isn't that how that movie ends? It's yeah. really, really gross. Um, <laughs> let's jump to the subject at hand now that we're 50 minutes into this mm-hmm. podcast. Halloween, H2O. Right. And we're <laughs> discussing this 50 minutes into the podcast. May as well rename it P50. <laughs> <laughs> 50 minutes later. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a great riff? I really enjoyed it. It was worth the build up. I am so happy to be here with Nick Naney and Jesse Hassinger. We're talking about Halloween H2O 20 years later. Is that the actual I think that's, that's the, the title. title. That's the yeah. on-screen title, yeah. Unbelievable. So before I bore everyone with like it's not boring, but I have to read a lot of information sure. about this crazy movie. I would love to know, Nick, your history with this movie. When did you first see it? Did you see it in theater? Did you see it at home? Tell me everything. And with and your relationship with the franchise at large. Sure. And horror movies. Tell us everything. No one knows anything about you on this Okay, podcast. cool. Uh, hey, what's up, Nick? I'm a cancer. Uh, <laughs> this was my first Halloween movie, I'd have to say. I saw it on video, and I got. I, I think I saw it because... Or well, I was just kind of watching like all sorts of ho- horror movies at that point when I was like thirteen when this came out, and then uh, I rented it and I became really into it. I remember buying a pre-watch video, a, a pre-watch VHS tape of this from Blockbuster, and I watched with the red sticker on with the, the red right. sticker yeah. on the bottom, and yeah. I probably watched it like half a dozen times. Wow! Probably I was like I was really into this particular movie, and then I bought the original Halloween on tape and I and honestly thought it paled in comparison I it was it like it kind of ruined it for me like seeing this first because I was like 13 and dumb and like you know yeah and I don't know shit and then like I and then I watched the original I'm like this is fucking slow you're like where's LL Cool J right yeah (laughs) this guy's just walking around oh great he's hanging out by laundry what the fuck is this you know so (laughs) So I, uh, it kind of colored my, uh, my view on the whole series, and, and then I, yeah, and then I, I didn't watch any of these movies for a very long time, and then this past year I've actually I I saw Hall- the original Halloween at a drive-in, and that was pretty great, but I still gotta say I'm not like, I'm not fucking cuckoo about this series. I understand. I understand why it's like important and all that, but it's also like, it just. I don't know. It just doesn't really do it for me. But it's still a much better movie than the subject at hand. I will say that because I rewatched that. I rewatched H two O at eight a.m. this morning on a lap on a laptop in my kitchen with headphones on. The way Steve Miner and right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I gotta say. For a lot of it, I w- it felt like a made-for-TV movie. If, it does. It feels like, yeah. It, if, yes, I if, will explain that in a bit. 
It's yeah, <laughs> definitely. It, you're very perceptive to say that. I will it say. it almost feels like a Fox Family, like or what was that channel? <laughs> ABC Family. It was ABC once family. Fox Family, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. ABC yeah. Family, like it feels it's now freeform. Right. Yeah. Beyond like the gore and like the language, it feels like an ABC Family movie, and for a lot of it, it's like, oh, what what is going on here? Espe- and even especially the score, the score alone, it's just like. Such a terrible version of John Carpenter's like original score, but then I did get really into it watching it this morning, and and especially I really did get into the third act where yes she fucking which is that van. the whole pitch when Jamie Lee pitches movie was basically that third act just like really? showdown between us two that's all we want to get to so mm-hmm. basically yeah the movie's all just a vehicle to get to that third act which I also agree is very satisfying. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny you mentioned seeing this before the first one coloring your experience because that is exactly how I feel with the I saw scary movie before I saw Scream. Oh yeah. And it is impossible to watch Scream. Right. Without me thinking of like every single dumb line from Scary Movie and how like the boyfriend on the porch is dressed like Prince yeah. <laughs> and like all the stupid <laughs> fucking jokes they did. Um so yeah, that kind of thinking just of re- David Arquette is mentally challenged. <laughs> yes. What a great bit that was. Um, Jesse, what is your experience with H2O? So I actually was struggling to remember, but I think I must have watched H2O in the run up, like everything else besides the first one that I had seen before. I watched um, in the run up to David Gordon Green's movie. So I watched it, in fact, H2O, 20 years, H2O, 20 years after (laughs) the release of Halloween H2O in, in 2018. And I was like, I didn't see when it came out. I was just looking like, you know, I wasn't seeing that many horror movies when it came out. I didn't really know the series when it came out. I was looking, though, it came out on August 7th, 1998. And this is very eerie. It uh, debuted just under the movie Snake Eyes at the box office, which, of course, I did see because it was Nicolas Cage, Brian DePaul movie. They opened to nearly identical numbers and grossed nearly identical numbers. They both opened to like 16 and change and both made 55 and change. Neck and neck, Snake Eyes and Halloween H2O. For some reason, they were like these weird spiritual twins. I kind of like Snake Eyes with Nick, with Nick Cage, especially the first 20 minutes. It's sort of the opposite of H2O, where the last 20 minutes are good, and the rest is kind of garbage, if you ask me. Um, I Damn, Jesse, so, go off. <laughs> I just like, like, I mean, you guys are sort of starting to get into what feeling like a TV movie. Uh, I did this time rewatching it come across like what is like a real TV edit. I feel like the other Halloweens I've seen on AMC were edited late enough that they don't really lose that much gore. And oh certainly yeah. Not like... There's actually an, a TV edit of this one. Yeah. And this, this has a real TV edit, like with all the swearing taken out. And you watch um, that I, one on your AMC. I, did, DVR. I mean, I think the first time I saw it, I rented it. So I, I have seen the original, uh, you know, in, in all of its like, you know, transgressive in your face glory. Uh, <laughs> And then I saw this like neutered the neutered TV cut. But you know what? Like the, what this watching that version made me feel like is the whole. I mean, to to your, the point you guys have both made about it being kind of TV movie. Like this movie feels to me, even when I was watching the kind of the original version, it feels like a TV edit of itself. Mm-hmm. It's short. It's like I cannot kind of, believe it is eighty minutes before the yeah. credits roll. <laughs> yeah. It is exactly eighty, yeah. and it just feels like every movie from this era would have been a hundred ten. Especially like yeah. a Kevin Williamson, like all the screen movies are two hours. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it has very Kevin Williamson notes, even though he didn't actually write the screenplay. Which oh, but he has sure. his fingerprints all over it, and people—it yeah. yeah, went to arbitration. 
Oh, WGA yeah, arbitration yeah. to try and see who gets credit. You can, you can yeah. hear him in it. Yeah. And he's all over. I, I usually like the, you know, the tight 80 minute horror movie thing, but someone actually on my letterbox feed, I don't remember who, but did a really nice job of breaking down just like minutes in terms of like how long it takes for things to happen. And then like how much time is left for And Like there are just so many characters in this movie and so little running time when, when you take out the credits, it is just about 80 minutes. It just breaks down like kind of pitifully where it's like, well, once you know, you spend like it's a pretty good opening sequence, and then like you waste a little bit of time, just waste a little bit of time on Michael on how Michael Myers switches cars at some point, and suddenly the movie's half over because like ten minutes out of an eighty minute movie is a lot. Uh, that's like that's you know, so point. it's just like yeah. it, I don't think, yeah, it doesn't use its time wisely. I would say, and I feel like uh, maybe people like it less now, but I feel like I was surprised to read to hear that some people seemed kind of. Into this one as being kind of a more respectable one. I think Curtis is very good in it, as she always is, and that kind of raises the game. And certainly that last that last act or whatever is pretty fun. But take that out, and I think this is as bad as any of the other like post three sequels, really. That's interesting to me because I think I don't think it's great, but I definitely think it's like a step up from six. I, I guess it's not I yeah, guess sure. I like four I and agree. five. Um, yeah. more than I ever have watching it, uh, this go around on this, on the podcast. But, um, yeah, I definitely had higher regard for this at one point than I do now. And I, it, I, it can't escape that TV feeling for me too. And it, I think it has something to do with the fact that like Kevin Williamson and, and Steve Miner met like working on the fucking Dawson's Creek pilot. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> it, it all like comes together in a very, I mean, that's TVS in way. the bathroom or w- when he steals the mother's purse and yeah keys. and yeah. it's like why would he's like he's supposed to be like the embodiment of evil and he's just like he's just like oh yeah i shouldn't kill these people it's like yeah well, <laughs> I, I see what i think they talked about that on the dvd commentary as like you know they're trying to get in the spirit of the original where it's all suspense 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 right. where it's all delay 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 the the payoff yeah. but there isn't a payoff there the payoff is he leaves and i think that the and director also that, that yeah. kid is a tell that nobody's nothing's gonna, gonna happen yeah yeah at, at you know nobody, nobody in, a, in a in a grislier movie it would be right it would be like a fake out and yeah. they would fucking kill the kid right and it would be like oh halloween h2o is not fucking around yeah and instead <laughs> Halloween H2O is kind of fucking around. And also, isn't that so <laughs> weird that, like, in H2O and in the David Gordon Green one, there's a bathroom There's scene. the same sequence, yeah. yeah. It, it, yeah. But it's grislier. I, I think the... it's upgraded in 2018 with the teeth. It's right. pretty yes, great. Yeah, for sure. Funnily enough, we actually had that victim on this podcast because she's my really? friend's babysitter. Whoa. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's... She, le- she called in and, uh, yeah, we, had, we tacked it out of the episode at the end. Oh, I forget so. her name, but she was very lovely. And ha- she had, like, you know, I don't think she had much uh, uh, experience with the franchise or anything mm-hmm. and just talked about getting the role. It was kind of like a first role for her. And t- it was nice. very, ex- very funny that she ended up <laughs> being on this podcast. And she's got the babysitter bonus bona fides perfect for Halloween. That's right. Exactly. That's that's that, that was pretty probably the joke I made to her at the time. <laughs> um, so let's talk about how this movie came together. So this is uh, the writer. Uh, is it Richard or Robert? Zappia. Let me at least get his... Robert Zappia. So it was the summer of 96. This is Zappia talking. I was working in television at the time, writing for sitcoms. I had written for Home Improvement and had finished on a short-lived sitcom starring David Chappelle called Buddies. During that hiatus, I wrote a spec uh, sci-fi feature called Population Zero, 
writing feature films was always my ultimate goal. So every hiatus, I would write a new spec with hopes of selling it. While Population Zero didn't sell, to my disappointment, it did catch the attention of an executive at Dimension named Richard Potter. My agent arranged for a general interview with Richard. I remember sitting in the Miramax Dimension lobby waiting for the meeting to start. I was sitting there for nearly 45 minutes and seriously thought about leaving. I've been at so many of these general meetings that never amounted to much. Uh, it's much more than a handful of compliments about my writing. Don't get me wrong, those are nice and all, but they don't pay the mortgage. Boy, am I glad I didn't get up and walk out. Uh, Richard came out and apologized for being behind, and we were and we talked about the spec script and such. I clicked with Richard from the minute we started chatting, just a really good down-to-earth exec, a rarity in Hollywood. Richard said they'd really like to work with me, but the only writing assignment they had open was a direct-to-video release of Halloween 7, mm -hmm. and would I be interested? And he said, you know, would I be interested? Of course, where do I sign? I was a huge fan of the original Halloween, and any chance to be a part of that franchise was such an exciting thought, whether it was released theatrically or not. Also, it was an opportunity I had hoped to, uh, would lead to more work with Dimension in the future and possibility of more future work. If I had a reservation, it was only that I felt the franchise had taken a turn toward the absurd, and I wasn't sure I could right the ship. At this point, I had no idea what anyone at Dimension uh, or Trackus International thought of the past couple of films. For all I knew, they felt those films finally lived up the franchise potential, so I was willing to take the risk. Uh, and the DP, uh, Stephen Okada? I fr uh, Darren Okada. Darren Okada, uh, Steve Miners, DP, they were working together on, on some movies. They were supposed to do Lake Placid, actually, oh right wow. before uh, Halloween came about. And then the they went out and scouted locations, and there was just no way they could start because of the weather. So like that movie got delayed. And then Steve ended up getting a call from Jamie Lee Curtis, who he had worked with on Forever Young with Mel Gibson and, uh, and Jamie Lee. So Steve went in and talked to Jamie Lee and... Basically, Jamie Lee had this idea to do the 20th anniversary, bring everybody back. So she, you know, th I believe she got John Carpenter. Yeah, John Carpenter was originally in negotiations to be the director because Jamie Lee Curtis wanted to reunite everybody. It's believed that Carpenter opted out because he wanted no active part in the sequel. However, it's not the case. He actually agreed to direct, but his starting fee as director was $10 million, and he wanted a three-picture deal with Dimension. Pay it. Yeah, right? It should have just been J.K. <laughs> Simmons and Burn After Reading, you know. Yeah, pay it. Pay it. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> God, I'm fucking love that movie. Uh, Carpenter rationalized this by saying the hefty fee was compensation for revenue he never received from the original Halloween. He's always said that he never got paid for that movie. And he actually said that that's why they did the second one, was to reap the benefits of not getting paid right, for the first yeah. one. So it's funny that he's still using that <laughs> 20 years later. I still want to get paid. So it's still a point of contention between him and Mustafa, you know, for 20 years. So when Mustafa balked at that price tag uh and dimension also balked dimension being the weinstein brothers mm -hmm. uh he walked away so that's how they you know that's when jamie lee went to steve and said hey steve would you do this so they jumped right into it they talked to their friend and basically what happened is darren okada was already attached with steve because they were doing uh, Lake Placid, and then we talked to a friend of ours who had done the pilot of Dawson's Creek with us, Kevin Williamson, of course, created and wrote it. He also wrote Scream. We said, we did that pilot for you. Can you do us a favor and do some rewrites on the movie? And that's how Kevin Williamson got And involved. this is like a crazy year for him where he was like writing like on five or six different movies, right? Or yes. Kevin and William doing Dawson's Creek. Yes. Fucking crazy. This was Kevin Williamson's like peak, definitely. He was... He did all. Uh, he wrote all the screams. He was doing, um, yeah, Dawson's Creek. He I'm was directing. He was writing uh, "Killing Mrs. Tingle." 
Oh, yes. God. I with, saw that movie. In yeah, wh- wh- which came out as yeah, teaching, teaching Mrs. Tingle. That's right. Teaching yeah. Mrs. Tingle. He wrote The Faculty, which also stars uh, Josh Hartnett, Josh Hartnett Josh who Hartnett. went and filmed that. He basically filmed this simultaneously, oh with, uh, which is funny because they're both Dimension. Right. So basically, Bob, uh, Josh Hartnett says they got him for The Faculty and then basically made him. They were like, if you also would, wouldn't mind reading for Halloween, we would like to have you here. And, uh, and he looks exactly like Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, it, it kind of works crazy. out. <laughs> yeah. So, he, yeah, this is right in that time when he's doing, um, yeah, he, uh, here's Kevin Wait, Williamson's. Wait, so he was, he was signed on for faculty, and then they brought him on to this, and he got introducing on this. Yes, yes. because the movie technically came out first. Wow. Yeah, faculty came out the following December. It was yeah. a Christmas 98 release. Big, big year for Josh Hartnett. Yeah. But yeah, Kevin Williamson, you're right. He wrote Scream 96. I know what you did last summer, 97. Scream 2, 97. The Faculty, 98. Tingle, 99. At the same time, he's producing Dawson's Creek, Wasteland. Uh, he's just everywhere. He's like, you know, 90s, late 90s hot guy. Yeah. He's uh, a... <laughs> They want him for everything. Uh, so there's also interviews here with uh, John Ottman, who did the score and then was fired. So the, the, the score for this movie is basically they hired this guy and they said, we want to do like Bernard Herrmann mm-hmm. orchestra. We want to do like Psycho-esque stuff. And this guy and made they have r- Psycho in it. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yes, they have the, the Psycho theme in one th- Yes, because Janet Lee's in the right, movie. Yeah. has a cameo, and they have the Psycho car. It's not the exact car from the movie, but it's crazy. the same model. Yeah. And, yeah, they do a really cool sting in the, in the score. But, basically, the score was just way over the top mm-hmm. and not the movie. It just didn't fit the movie, according to Weinstein. I forget what joke he made about uh, the score not working. But, basically, what they did was the movie had been screening so often with the temp score, which was just bits of scream 2 and mimic Mm -hmm. they just kept that what they basically kept (laughs) that and what's in the final movie is like 50 percent john ottman score with mix mixes and mashed bits of scream and mimic so they kept his opening scene score which he's really proud of that really loud opening credit Mm -hmm. uh thing that i think you said sounded bad like bad john carpenter music yeah he did that and there's i would love to i'm actually going to end this episode with a 17 minute suite um, that I want because I'm sure some people are interested to hear it but it's just the John Ottman score it's like a medley that he released on CD on his own later mm. because it never came out it's called like something of terror I forget what it's called but I think the score is actually interesting mm-hmm. and it definitely is just huge like has all this orchestra stuff and the movie it just they, they wanted like bare bones just slasher music like rant 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 just give us like the classic scary noises so there's a lot of there's a lot to talk about with um with the troubled production, uh, but the ge- I want to talk about what the general idea for the pitch was. The original script that Zappia, Robert Zappia, brought was called Halloween: Two Faces of Evil. The original pitch was to set the movie in an all-girls boarding school. The movie starts when Michael is found dead in the maximum security p- penitentiary. He's transported to the local morgue, and as you can imagine, things don't go well for that mortician. And soon Michael is out and wreaking havoc on the students of the boarding school. I believe it was producer Paul Freeman who had the idea of adding a copycat killer to the fray who was captured and served the same purpose as Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. The draft Two Faces of Evil, the two faces being Michael and the copycat, evolved from there. Before it became H2O with Jamie Lee Curtis reprising a role, I really wanted to make a film that I would enjoy as a fan of the original. I wanted to try and recapture as best I could what John Carpenter had in the first Halloween. 
It had the lowest budget of any of them, and yet in my mind it was the scariest of them all. Carpenter couldn't rely on big budget effects, and he didn't have unlimited setup and shoot days. He had to boil down the story and characters to their most primal level. Ultimately, the boarding school afforded me a micro Haddonfield where I could let Michael Myers loose and focus on the inventiveness rather than the goriness of the murders. The copycat element added a distinct story device that added a layer of complexity to the script. That opening scene with Nurse Whittington and, the, and Donald Pleasant sounded like voiceover was the one scene that survived from my very first draft to the big screen. So we completed the first draft Two-Face of Evil turned it in. Next thing he knows, his agent called and said Bob Weinstein's thrilled with the script and wants to meet. But it was in that meeting he told him that he personally spoke to Jamie Lee Curtis and that she agreed to do the film for the 20th anniversary. And he said they loved the boarding school idea and asked my thoughts about regarding her working, uh, working her into the current story. I suggested she be a teacher, a headmistress at the school. The first draft I turned in with Jamie Lee was called Halloween Blood Ties. The preceding drafts were called Halloween, The Revenge of Laurie Strode. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I remember when Return of the Jedi was originally called Revenge of the Jedi. I always preferred that. So I had fun with the idea of Halloween 7 being called The Revenge of Laurie Strode. I think there were a number of additional factors that lured Jamie back. Steve Miner's involvement, Kevin Williamson being brought aboard, and of course a sizable payday. I believe it was Jamie herself who had strong ideas about where the character would be emotionally after 20 years of dealing with her tormented past. The functioning alcoholic angle, while not wholly original, certainly was believable. Before it was determined that there would be no reference to Halloween 4 through 6, I attributed much of her pain to the fact that she, that she thought uh, uh, by staging her death she was protecting her daughter Jamie. Of course, Michael found his niece and the rest was history, but even without this backstory, having gone through the terror of Halloween 20 years ago was certainly enough to drive her to drink. So a few interesting things there. There was an original, th in the original draft of the script I was reading uh, online, it's mentions here, but I also read a little further elsewhere. There was the whole Jamie Lloyd thing canonized. Like it was Jamie Lee faked her death, which they do keep in this movie because mm. she's, they said she faked her death in, in the one of those movies or they said she died in a car accident so now in this movie they say she faked right. her death in a car accident to protect her daughter jamie but michael ends up killing jamie we know in the halloween four through six whatever one that was so i think it's funny that they had that idea of um you know she's a functioning alcoholic because of this but it still works even mm -hmm. though <laughs> she's only half as traumatized as she would be if the the canon was larger if right. they kept the jamie lloyd stuff in um, I think that's interesting. I also think it's interesting that in the original draft of the script, the reason, I think this actually makes more sense. It was a girl, all girls school that Jamie Lee worked at and Josh Hartnett was the only boy there because she was so scared to not be by his oh, side wow. that she had him enrolled at this all girls school. Yeah. That is a better detail to me than just like generic. Mm -hmm. Everyone is, is, they just made it co-ed to make it easier. Right. Now, if I remember correctly, he was originally supposed to play soccer, and Rodney Dangerfield was going to be his coach. Is that Whoa. right? Do I have that right? <laughs> oh, yeah, got me. With Halloween school ties, absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah, before he signed on, um, the copycat killer. If you want to know who that ended up being, it was the character that ended up just being the the friend Charlie. That oh. character, when he signed on, was supposed to be the copycat killer. Young Robin Williams from Jumanji. So funny you mentioned that. I actually, like, had to look up on my phone. I'm like, I know that face. That is the fucking kid from Jumanji. And it is. He has, like, five credits. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of them. He was also Incredible. Little Man Tate. Little Man Tate. Which I haven't seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wait, if he, is he, does he play the main kid in Little Man Tate? I believe so, yeah. Is he the titular Little Man Tate? 
Mm-hmm. I think my wife corrected his film final when she was a like unofficial TA for her film class at Wesleyan. Oh my god! Wow, <laughs> what a connection. He did very What's, well. Is that kid's name? Uh, uh, God, I only have uh, Adam Hain. Adam yeah. Hain Bird. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Something. They don't even show his death. They don't. They. Yeah. Uh, so Jamie Lee talks about that too. She said they. She, she and uh, the director like basically. It's important to know that Jamie Lee like kind of was the secret ingredient behind the scenes here. Like she mm-hmm. really was involved in everything like she was telling the character charlie offset like oh me and uh steve were talking all night about how we should kill your character and she wanted his hand to actually get caught in the what is it called the dumb waiter not the dumb waiter oh, the, wait, the 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 thing that they don't have in new york <laughs> uh the garbage disposal he puts his hand in the oh, sink remember yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's about to go yes. off um so she wanted his hand to get caught in there, but oh, what that right, scene yeah. ended up playing, the, what they end up doing is have that scene played for tension, like they always do, like the scene in the with the lady in the bathroom, and they don't end up killing her. They do that with the, his hand, and it's end, it ends up being fine. And then he turns around, and then Michael's just there, and he just and he says, "Hey, yeah." <laughs> He says, hey, and they they cut away, and it's like, well, what the fuck? And also, if you notice that scene, you can look up images of it online. We'll talk about the mask at some point, but there are four masks in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them is that shot. It is the only shot in the movie that's a digital overlay of a mask, and it looks so weird and smooth. It's just just that one shot when when Charlie looks around behind him. It's just, for some reason, they didn't they forgot to reshoot that scene or something when they changed the mask. So they just digitally did it. It's, it's crazy. There are so many random, th- like this movie has all the bearings of a wine scene production in terms of <laughs> like multiple cuts of the movie. They like everything about it is just everything you've heard about how wine scenes make movies. The score was in, was completed and then shit on and cut mm-hmm. to pieces. And they, they put a temp score in the movie. Like, Everything about it is ridiculous. And the masks uh, in particular. And was the, Joseph Gordon-Levitt supposed to have a bigger role? No, he no? was. He wasn't a big at the time either, I feel like. Wasn't yeah. he just like a... Third Rock from the third Sun. Rock from yeah, the he Sun was Third Rock, yeah. Right. So, um, I don't know where I feel I like they kind of gave, gave him a little room to like have fun with it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. You got to yeah, skate in the face in the opening scene. Yeah, what more he gets like that. Well, that whole section, as a, I'm sure we'll get to as we talk about the movie in full, but like that whole section is afforded a lot of time and detail compared yeah. to what the main characters in the movie get, which is very little. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing. Like that movie, the opening scene with the nurse. It's ner- it's the nurse from you know the original movie, right? And like that's their big like, wow, it's our connection. You know, <laughs> it's Marion Whittington, formerly Marion Chambers, returns home to find that her house has been broken into. She goes to her neighbors and phones the police, but her teenage neighbors insist on investigating the house. That's the opening scene. Um, and that was, of course, the opening scene in one of his first drafts of the of the whole thing. But uh, that scene just, you know, introduces us to the a character we know. She gets killed right away after a little bit of a fight. And then we get the classic, like, opening credits over uh, newspaper clippings. Mm-hmm. But yes. it's all stuff we already know because we've all seen these movies. Yeah. And I'm trying to think if that like even adds anything really, other than like they had to get a guy to do Loomis's voice that wasn't Loomis because he's dead. I think that was like basically for 13 year old me who <laughs> hadn't, hadn't seen, seen the rest seen, of it. Yeah, like only knew this plot vaguely, and uh, you know, I I think it honestly was like to catch like screen yeah, screen th- fans yeah. up to speed on 
the deal, you know. I yeah. think you're absolutely right. I, that's why one of the newspaper headlines reads, Michael Myers, colon, very scary guy. <laughs> <laughs> that is but no, incredible. I think that's right. Like, I think that, that that's, and it's fairly efficient. Like, I mean, it's not elegant for anyone who has seen the other movies, but it is a pretty efficient way with, for not, to not, like, dwell too much in this movie that is fairly uh, brief. <laughs> Uh, before I go more into the into the actual movie, it's just like I'm reading more of my notes from the pre-production. It's like, again, the Weinstein mark. It's like market research showed these films were huge with African-American audiences. So, like, that's why they got LL Cool J. Sure. It's a classic database decision, but I love that it's like they're accidentally woke. Like, they're, they're yeah. being accidentally hiring a diverse cast. Right. Oh, whoa. Uh, but Josh Hartnett was so freaked out. He's 19 years old. He's a huge LL fan, and that's like the first CD he ever bought. So like all that like camaraderie on screen between them is actually pretty real. Like they would say like uh, Josh Hartnett would always mussy up his hair in between takes because he didn't like the way that it was perfectly quaffed. Like, teenagers don't look like that. So like there's a scene where he's like tells them to comb your hair and that was genuine. Don't you love this behind the scenes detail? That that's fantastic. He had a entourage with them wherever he went. Ten big guys all around him. But uh, LL Cool J would stay at stay after he was done shooting every day and watch the shoot every day. It was like his first foray into movies. And then he, you know, I think he went on and did some other stuff. Yeah. He was in deep blue sea and then ended That's up right. doing, he's yeah. on NCIS for like years. So oh, wow. this really, this really, this weirdly kind of launched him more than it launched Josh Hartnett in the long run. Anyway, like L cool J certainly seems like he's gotten more work acting work over the past two decades than Hartnett has. And it started uh, a very short lived tradition of putting a, a, a hip hop, star in, in a yeah. Halloween movie. A two-movie right. tradition. two-movie tradition. Yeah, they yeah. did it back-to-back, -back, you know, <laughs> marketing decisions. Uh, so Chris Duran plays Michael Myers here. He's a stuntman. He says he played Michael like a big cat. <laughs> the, when you lock on to prey and it's scary. So he's like, oh, like, like that kind of big cat. <laughs> yeah, not like a not like a big, like a regular size house. Yeah. Not a big house cat. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he'd lock onto his target, tilt his head, lock his eyes, and very low in his throat, he would actually growl, he said, oh, while wow. he was doing it. And he put that energy into it so he could be scary in the room and scare everybody. Just uh, like a big cat would steal a woman's purse and not kill her. <laughs> um there was a joke on set that, you know, that Michael should pick up a gun and Mustafa Akkad, the protector of the franchise, was like, absolutely not. Michael can never have a gun. So there was a scene, the scene where he's flipping over the tables and stuff and he's standing on the table with the knife mm -hmm. uh, while Mustafa was there. They had they shot a fake scene where like he dropped the knife and pulled out a gun and started shooting it just to <laughs> just to freak out Mustafa Khan wow. and they said you got me. So I always <laughs> I love reading re reading details from the set. Um, so the mask stuff. There was a different mask for every movie except the second movie, mm -hmm. which they just used the same one from the first one. But it had like a guy with a much rounder face, so oh, it wow. looked different anyway. So the first mask for this movie, they, which they call the K and B mask aka the casper the ghost mask they basically it was super white featureless that was too ethereal looking it's not really in the movie except for in the background like not never in close-up because they shot it there were three weeks in the shooting when the weinstein saw the dailies or whatever and said you guys can't use that mask anymore so the consensus from like everyone at dimension and the weinsteins was that you had to change the mask so they there's one scene that they, they didn't want to lose a day of shooting, so they just used the mask from Six, and that's in the opening scene with Marion. Mm. That whole scene is the mask from Six. And then the rest of the movie is, a f is another mask, the Stan Winston mask. They made another one that looks 
I still think the movie, the mask looks really bad in this movie, so it's not that much better. But, like, the eye holes are too big. You see way or too much around his eyes. Mm-hmm. I think it's scary if you only see his eyes. But if you see the white, like, the like the white skin around his eyes, it's just like, that's just a guy in a mask. Yeah. Uh, so they still had that issue, I think. But everyone said the first mask was more comical than it was frightening. Nobody liked it. Uh, oddly enough, uh, the Patrick Lussier, the editor of this movie, and who went on to direct some stuff like My Buddy Valentine, and uh, he edited Scream as well. He said the opening scene of Scream, it all he was used to this because he said if you watch Scream, you'll see how many masks they use in the opening scene. There's like mm-hmm. multiple. He's like they couldn't figure it out, and you can still see it. Um, they made more masks from the original mold from Part Six. Th- uh, uh, the director wanted no features and washed out in a blank slate, and th- but the features were too muted. So, yeah, basically they were fighting over it, and that's why they used the, the mask from Six that one day while they were fighting it. Uh, basically, the reshoots cost $1.7 to $2 million just to redo uh, all the close-ups of the mask. In long shots, oh. they just fuck, they said fuck it and left it, wow. and you can see the old mask. And, of course, there's that one shot with the weird digital effect. looks like a floating cartoon. Be on the lookout for it. It's in the Charlie's death scene. It's really incredible. Um, they said the set must have been torn down, and that's why they didn't remember to fix that shot. They said that the anamorphic lenses were taken up at the time at the studio, so they didn't, they couldn't shoot it on anamorphic lenses. They just shoot it on Super 35 and like you know do the process to translate it or whatever that is. Um, lots of shots in the movie call back to the original. I'm sure you noticed that throughout, like you know Michelle Williams looking out the window. Mm-hmm. Adam Arkin's death scene is like getting stabbed through the back and picked up. Also, the scene where uh, Michael she hits him with the fire extinguisher and he's laying on the ground. And then he's in the background, and he rises. Yes. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it has the same exact effect on the audience. It's as thrilling. Yes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Charlie doesn't die on screen, as we mentioned, but he did spend all night shooting, pretending to be dead in a dumb waiter with a broken neck. Uh, well, that also felt like a callback to like Halloween. What five or four? Four. There was a dumb waiter scene in one of them with Jamie Lloyd. Yeah. Yeah. With Jamie. Yeah. Uh, they said they shot that stuff near the Universal tra- uh, on the Universal lot near the tram tour, and Charlie would have his bloody neck shit on when like the tours would come by, and he would just come out and fuck with them, and they <laughs> all thought it was a part of it. Uh, the big, the big hullabaloo about this movie uh, that made Jamie almost leave the movie three weeks before shooting was that there was a disagreement over how it should end. So Jamie demanded that like it end with Michael being killed. Yeah. And she said she wouldn't do it any other way. So Kevin Williamson is the one who came up with the fucking scheme that is, okay, we will have the ending that Jamie wants. She beheads Michael, and everyone in this movie thinks that that's what happened. Michael is beheaded. Uh, Jesse, I don't think, has seen Resurrection yet. I have seen the, I have seen oh, the okay. opening of Resurrection because I was curious for this very reason. So please oh, okay. go. I haven't seen it, but I know I know about it. Okay, about, yeah. so yeah. So basically the, the, the compromise was we'll end this movie making it look like Michael dies, but we have a foolproof plan that explains why it's not true for when eight opens that completely retcons and is total bullshit that ruins what happened. They basically said that Michael changed clothes with like some guy and that was some guy she beheaded and he's still out there. Right. It's a dumbest fucking thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about resurrection next week, but, uh, Anyway, uh, Mustafa had creative say, and then Dimension was distributor. uh, But once it became Jamie Lee Curtis, Dimension wanted more creative control, so there was all these fighting. But Mustafa, in his contract, whenever you make a Halloween movie, there's a clause that says Michael can't be killed. (laughs) 
So like that's <laughs> like what they had to work around, and like Mustafa eventually agreed to the the plan that they had. Um, I believe I'll talk about the alternate endings when we get there. Um, let's see. In this, uh, I'll talk about that when we get there. We'll talk about the score when we get there. So basically, this is, I'll talk about the score actually really really quick. Steve, Steve Miner's vision was, you know, Hitchcock approach to a slasher film, which had him excited to, to make the score for it. He, you know, hired a big orchestra, uh, delivered it, and they discovered quickly that it wasn't going to work. It, it just was a big, it sounded like a Western or something. It just mm-hmm. sounded like a very, it was very, it just sounded like a much different movie than, than a slasher movie. Over-orchestrated, lots of, like, vocal choirs, like, ha, ha, like a lot of that <laughs> noise going on. Very busy, and what they said is counter to the idea that Michael is a machine and relentless and will not stop. That's what the theme is supposed to be, and it just didn't work. Weinstein said it was a movie about Heathcliff on the Moors. That's what the <laughs> that's what the score sounded like. Um, so th- this all happened while Steve was already off the movie directing Lake Placid, and he found out that they fucked up the score. Like he just uh-huh. came back and was like, "Yeah, I heard that the score was not working, and they ended up the test screenings where the temp score worked better, so they worked it back in." Uh, so yeah, this, the guy who did the score, John Ottman's really bummed out about what happened. Basically, Marco Beltrami, who did the score, I think, for Mimic and Scream, mm-hmm. came in and like put a, not only mixed the temp scores in, but also added a few other cues of his own. Uh, the movie ended up being a big hit, obviously. Uh, in adjusted dollars, it was the most successful one until the new one uh, in 2018. Mm-hmm. But it, no one's exceeded the original in terms of pure profits. And the director, when making this, in his mind, the tri- <coughs> excuse me, in his mind, the trilogy is Halloween, Halloween Two, and Halloween H Two O. This is the original trilogy. Uh, <laughs> so let's talk about the movie and st- interrupt me to make fun of a scene or talk about a scene at okay. any point. <laughs> um, we talked about the opening. Uh, Marion gets basically Marion's in the house. Her neighbor kids are looking around, rushing next door. She finds her teenage. Uh, neighbors murdered and Michael Myers appears wearing the trademark white mask. Michael stalks and kills Mary and then gets into a car and drives off just as the police arrive to investigate the break-in discovering the bodies. Pretty dumb cops. Like, the, the, they truly <laughs> do pull up and he just pulls right out. Yeah. <laughs> it's an incredible sequence. And he knows not to put the lights on. Like, he's... I, I just love his level of intellect, you know? Like, well, don't you? That's another thing we talk about a lot. Like in the first movie, how he like digs up the the tombstone and puts it on the bed. Like right. he's, a, he's a showman. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's also I mean, and maybe I missed why this is, but like this is the nurse, and she is said to have been taking care of Loomis in, yes. as she's, in later years. But that like I, I mean, I guess maybe if he had a private practice, but like there's a file on Laurie Strode in her house where Loomis because Loomis used to live there that just seems like yeah you know know, Michael went and ransacked the office it seems like a HIPAA violation to me (laughs) (laughs) it definitely is I'll just take these files home with me in my dotage and then like whoever can just they'll just be with my things it's like my trophies from high school my patients files like with their personal information and their current address like it just that you know it's I know it's just movie stuff but I found that kind of dumb when did Loomis die in this like well, he universe. died in between. He died right at the right after doing six, uh, in real life. In real life, and yeah. In the movies, technically, they've killed him more than one. Like they killed him in two, and then brought him back, uh, for four, five, six. Oh, that's right. He died in the explosion. He dies in the explosion, but they just give him that. like a weird burn mark on his face, and they say he's fine. Does right. he die at the end of six? I think he does, or maybe. 
right? don't think the character does. Yeah. Um, but I think he's left screaming once again. <laughs> um, oh, so I think right. in the movie, I think that the according to this, I mean, since this movie skips four, five, and six anyway, but the idea seemed to be that he kind of retires and gets to, you know, live out his life in only a fit of mild paranoia that he's going to be killed by Michael Myers. Right. And then we cut to Laurie Strode, who's reloaded, relocated to California, which is funny because all the Halloween movies are shot in California, but mm-hmm. are supposed to be Illinois. Uh, she is now known as Carrie Tate, headmistress of a small private prep school. She's a teenage son named John, and the two of them live on campus with the rest of the students. Laurie still struggles with the events of Halloween night 78. We know this because it opens with that POV shot dream sequence that kind of like takes you on a little tour mm-hmm. through her psyche a little tales from the crypt opening it credits, is yes know. absolutely yeah. i kept waiting for like a pun to be thrown at me <laughs> by a by a skeleton uh laurie still struggles with the events when michael Myers stalked and killed those around her as a means to escape her past she faked her death and has been living under her assumed identity ever since her past trauma as well as the stress of living under her false uh pretense has turned her into a functioning alcoholic she is also heavily dependent on medication for her emotional condition it's so funny to me that 2018 Halloween, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, gets all, you know, was talked about in these terms of like mm-hmm. trauma and all that stuff. Alcoholism. When it's like too. Alcoholism. Yeah. It's like everyone just, it's like a massive psyop operated by Jamie Lee that everyone just forgets this movie exists yeah. while promoting the 2018 Halloween. Because it's all the hallmarks that that one was like trying to uh, say was new. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, yeah, she's dealing with trauma. She's an alcoholic. And she's on medication, and she, it, it ends with her getting her revenge. Yeah, it's kind of funny that it's basically a remake of that of mm-hmm. this one. Oddly enough, you know what would have been cool if they did one in two thousand eight, HBO. Yeah. You know, HBO. Yeah. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. Fifty year old uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird to me that she's. I mean, it makes sense. The math all checks out, and she is more or less the same. She's like only a slightly older than Laura Laurie Strode's actual age. It's wild to me that Jamie Lee Curtis's character, that Laurie Strode is thirty eight in this movie. Uh, I mean, again, it's it's not like she looks way older. It's just like weird to me that she she's like younger than I am now in this movie. It has like a teenage son and stuff. It's like, it just doesn't have that. I think that's part of the reason why the Duke Gordon Green one works for me a little better is that like, you feel the weight of the years a little more, even though 20 years is a long time, the 40 years that you get in, in the David Gordon Green just feels, I don't know. You just feel the weight of that a lot more. And like the kind of age of it in this one, it just kind of feels like, Oh yeah, she's like still having, she's still in her thirties. Like (laughs) there's, there's so much, so much left life left. She's having sex, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. With Alan Arkin's At, son. Yeah, Adam Arkin. Uh, Lori has a secretary named Norma, played by her mother, Janet Lee, who date uh, who dotes on her like a parent and notices how Lori gets particularly she shaken. She wants to be maternal. Yes. She said, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lori's boyfriend, Will, is a guidance counselor at the school, and the two of them share a semi-discreet relationship. But Lori's relationship with John is becoming strange. She's overprotective of him and refuses to allow him much freedom. He is to stay within the locked school grounds at all times, and she denies him the right to attend an annual school camping trip to Yosemite, which is on Halloween. John's girlfriend, Molly, played by a young Michelle Williams, uh, also stays behind due to some problems with her tuition. Their friends, Charlie and Sarah, also fabricate reasons to stay behind so the four of them can celebrate Halloween together on the near-deserted campus. John and Charlie convince the school security guard, Ronnie, LL Cool J, to open the gate 
and let them out so they can walk into town and shoplift a bottle of wine for their party. Uh, Lori ends up meeting Will for lunch in town and opens up to him a little bit. This scene does some good character work in that he runs to the bathroom and she like asks the waiter to get her an extra bottle of uh, or an extra glass of wine to chug today. before he gets back. Yeah. Today. Can I have it today? <laughs> yeah. Because she's just standing there looking at her full yeah. glass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, while he's in the men's room, she already said that. Uh, on her way back to school, I love that the person put the, the detail of the wine chug in the synopsis. Oh, yeah. It's important. <laughs> important character stuff. On her way back to school, Lori sees John and Charlie walking down the street and becomes enraged that he left the school grounds. John also gets angry at her for, you know, asserting, uh, telling her that she needs to accept the fact that Michael Myers is dead and, like, let him live his life. Lori drives Charlie and John back to school and scolds drives Ronnie. Drives drunk. Drives, yeah. She's fucking, fucking loaded at Loaded point. on yeah. uh, wine. Gets in her, like, Jeep-looking car and takes him back to school. Meanwhile, we know Michael Myers has arrived at the school because his little jalopy that he stole from the lady at the bathroom. <laughs> just is park there. it anywhere. Yeah, yeah just leave, <laughs> just fucking leave it right there. I've, I'm really sad that we don't get any besides the rest stop, which is a very strange rest stop. I don't. But, oh yeah. Uh, I we don't get any of Michael Myers going on a cross country trip here, guys. Like yeah. he's driving thousands of miles. I'm just like, I would love a kind of slow cinema Gus Van Sant version where you're just like in the car with Michael Myers for like well, 20 minutes of screen time. You remember know, just like... when we talked about Six, Quentin Tarantino at one point was was, was approached to write this and his pitch yes. was basically Natural Born Killers. It was like Michael and, and the Man in Black from the Cult of Thorn bullshit right, like right. are on the road killing people mm-hmm. at rest stops. <laughs> I don't even want the killing. I just want Michael Myers like fiddling with the radio. <laughs> what, is, what does he eat? You know? Yeah, exactly. I want to yeah. see him at the drive-thru, like, I'll yeah. take a number two. <laughs> <laughs> um, no onions. I don't know what his voice would even sound like. Um, Has he ever talked ever? In he he was book? supposed to talk in this scene when she chops his head off. When he pulls his hand out, he was supposed to say Lori, and they, they cut it. They cut it. He's well, never really spoken. Well, it's not really him. That's not really exactly. That yeah. was the reason they cut it. He said because it would have it would have made no sense, even less sense, if that the security guard who she kills thinking it's Michael's knew her name. Right. <laughs> it would make no <laughs> sense. So they cut it out. Uh, but yeah, Michael Myers has arrived at school. He follows Lori downtown and lurks outside the school later, staring in at Molly as she sits in Lori's literature class. Lori addresses the students before they go for Yosemite and lectures them to be on their best behavior. Afterwards, she surprises John by telling him she's changed her mind and will allow him to go with the others. But since he's already made plans with Molly, Charlie, and Sarah, he stays behind anyway without telling her. That night, Michael slips onto the grounds uh, by distracting Ronnie at the gate. That scene's pretty fun. You think Ronnie's going to get it, but he doesn't. No. Uh, this movie is constantly doing like what I would say is like blue balling you. Yeah. <laughs> they keep like putting people in harm's way and then taking them out. And I guess that's makes the third act more satisfying but it also makes the rest of it maybe less satisfying it also I, makes it a slasher movie where two people get killed it's <laughs> a good point yeah a lot of or, i mean more than two but not yeah many. not that many <laughs> uh uh so that night he slips oh, i already said that ronnie's unharmed but knows something is wrong john and his friends get ready to eat dinner when charlie goes off in search of a corkscrew uh, Sarah follows him, and they're both murdered by Michael Myers. The way that is described is basically how the movie treats it. Yeah. Her, her death is a little better. She gets her legs uh, cut, caught in the dumbwaiter and crawls away and then gets hung like a light fixture. That was cool. That is cool. And they actually yeah. had like a whole prosthetic body for that sequence. But Charlie, the whole sequence of getting killed with a corkscrew, like the whole idea of it's great. 
And I think the idea is that he does get killed with the corkscrew in his neck. Mm-hmm. Like the way his neck is gross in the in the dumbwaiter. It's crazy to me they don't have a death scene with the corkscrew. Like yeah. why would you Did cut they away shoot from it? that? Or, or no. no, they didn't. Shoot no, they didn't it. shoot it. Wow, that's never stupid. shot it. They were just always they they the director was all about the trying to be like the original and not be gory. He just oh wanted God. to be. He thought he was John Carpenter and that he could like get that tension from all these sequences. But it's like, nah, I'm just watching a guy put his hand in a sink. It's not that <laughs> it's not that intense. Um, it's I see what he was going for, but I don't think it quite worked. But yeah, those two both die. Uh, Will and Laurie are carving a pumpkin together, if that's what you call it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, Laurie then tells her him, you know, that she's not Carrie Tate and her real name is Laurie Strode. And he thinks she's joking when she tells him that her brother killed her sister with a kitchen knife and that years later he came after her. You know, hilarious bit. Right. Yeah. Very I love a, I love how a guidance counselor like he hears this horrible story. And he's like, take off your clothes. <laughs> <laughs> this fucking 50 year old guidance counselor. <laughs> Let's explore that a little bit. Yeah. Maybe after. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, he eventually realizes she's telling the truth and wonders how old Lori was at the time. She tells him she was 17, and that's when she looks across the room and it's like John's 17th birthday or something. Oh, yeah. It was like a yeah. birthday card for his 17th birthday. It's, it's, been, it's two months late, so it's, it, they, yeah, she, it's, it's a weird delayed connection she makes to like, wait a minute. But yeah, it's like her being 17 and him being 17 recently makes it like she's more worried that Michael's going to come back. Like her sense of panic sets in and she tries to call John, but the phones are dead, which, you know, makes her panic worse. She immediately goes to her bedroom and gets her gun from under her pillow uh, and discovers John's camping gear in the closet. So she knows he hasn't left. So Ronnie appears at the front door and tells him there's a strange car parked in the driveway and they decide to search for John and the others. Meanwhile, John and Molly get restless and search for their friends. Finding Sarah's body hanging from the light fixture. Uh, they also see like a trail of blood leading to the dumb waiter. Uh, Michael Myers appears and chases them and they flee back to John's residence. Myers corners them in a doorway blocked by a gate. Laurie and Will open the gate and let the kids inside just barely in time before Michael's can. That might be the best. Scene when he's like at the, the whole gate. Movie. Yeah. 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 Uh, just in time before uh, he can get in, Laurie and Michael stare at each other momentarily through the door's tiny window. That's, that's a nice shot, I have to say. That's a good... Yeah. I'm sure that was in the trailer. That's it definitely good, was. You know, definitely yeah. in the trailer. Uh, before Laurie can get her gun, he disappears. But yeah, that's kind of... That's when Laurie's, uh, when Jamie Lee Curtis on the commentary is like, this is when the movie kicks into high gear. Like Once that moment happens, the rest of it's just like yeah. kind of like fun. And I agree. But it's crazy that it takes kind of like 50-ish minutes right. to more, get... More, I think, yeah. More, it takes a long time <laughs> to get going. At the same time, it does fly by for me. Like It's not like a laborious watch. No, but, no, no. But it, it's, it's weirdly put together for some... Like, it, I just can't wrap my head around the fact that it's not 111 minutes. I don't yeah. know why. I just <laughs> it feels and looks and I remember it as as such. Well, I think the those it's part of it's those scenes with with Jamie Lee Curtis opposite Adam Arkin. Um, There's a lot of they're them. just they were kind of perfunctory. Like they, they what you were saying, Brad. They definitely do start to cover the stuff that that the Halloween 2018 co- would go to cover again and pretend that no one had ever done this before. At the same time, I get why they thought they never, no one had really or tried to pretend nobody had done this before Yeah, because it's done in this kind of expositional, like, you know, I, I hate to say this kind of stuff because I'm actually fine with, with telling instead of showing, but a lot of it is very like told instead of showing there's a, you know, like the character one with the, like the glass of wine. Sure. That's a good thing. But like her, she just kind of explains her backstory to her boyfriend and there's not like he must have not seen the opening credits yeah Yeah, yeah. exactly yeah um 
And there's just, like, not a lot. I mean, like, there's just a lot of drama or, like, tension in those scenes. She just kind of explains her backstory to him. And, and then, also, like, okay. he knows who Michael Myers is. Yeah, is yeah. Like, He's, so... like, apparently Michael Myers is, like, a world-famous or yeah. at least nationally famous uh, uh, serial murderer. And... It just doesn't. Yeah, exactly. He's not. He seems like kind of nonplussed by it. Like it's like a you know, it's kind of like a mind blower for him. But it's like it's like trivia almost to him. It doesn't have like a real weight to like there. And then they kind of kick right into like okay. And anyway, like now he's here and he's stalking us. There's not like a kind of grand build up with that material. And it's not Curtis's fault. I think she's quite good and is really like trying to play Laurie as a grown up twenty years later. But. The movie is just so diffuse before that that it's really like that's why it feel I think why it feels it doesn't feel long it's it's quite brisk but it like it doesn't feel like the right things are emphasized there's yeah. like a lot of time about you know comparatively speaking a lot of time devoted to like permission slips about going to Yosemite versus <laughs> yeah. Laurie Strode's uh, deathless twenty year trauma that she that she lives with every day is a burden you know like it's those things are given more or less equal weight. Um, and then it just sort of loses track of those teenage characters anyway. Two of them get killed very quickly. Hartnett is not really there for much of the finale. Michelle Williams' character is sort of just, like, brushed aside. And, and you know, it just doesn't have that, like... It doesn't feel relentless the way that the better Halloween movies do. And it's not just like, oh, I want a large body count. Uh, but it does kind of feel like, oh, yeah, yeah, a couple people get killed, I guess. And then the rest kind of run away. And yeah, most people are okay. You know, it's just like. Yeah. It does, like, and I'm yeah. all for where it ends up, especially with, like, Jamie Lee taking the fucking corpse in her, on her own. And, like, I love yeah, yeah. I love the whole, I guess, last eight minutes of it. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And I just wish the rest of the movie like why can't the rest of the movie have that energy it yeah. feels oh, like they yeah. were writing it and they were like all right this is fine i guess but we really need to like there's got to be something and it feels <laughs> like they it feels like they were kind of compensating for like sort of like mediocre things like they were like let's just like really, really like drive it in at the end it just yeah. it just feels like it feels like they were coming to the end of the draft and they weren't very happy with it. And they were just like, let's do this really quick. Yeah. yeah. Let's, get to the good, let's get to the good part. Well, I'm like that. I mean, the, my watching it the first time and again, watching it and rewatching it, her, you know, just like very decisively picking up the ax. And then the next cut is like her kind of like walking with the ax and the Halloween theme kicks in. And then she's like, you know, calling like Michael, like yeah. that's fucking awesome. Yeah, like that, great. that's, yeah. that's like such a great moment. It's kind of wasted in this movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll, I'm going to keep reading the description. And then we'll talk yeah. about that moment. Uh, before she drives off, Lori has a, Oh no, wait, Lori puts John and Molly in a room and locks it while she and will look for Myers in the hallway. Will sees a shadow. and thinks it's Myers grabbing Lori's gun and shooting, but he it's Ronnie, and he shoots Ronnie. So Will has shot him in the head. He's dead. As they panic about the mistake, Myers appears behind him and stabs Will to death, like the death in Halloween 2, with a scalpel right in the back, chases Lori down the hallway. She hits him over the head with a fire extinguisher and runs off with John and Molly. They make it to their vehicle, and Lori drives off to the front gate. Before she drives off, Lori has a sudden moment of revelation. Instead of running, she sends John and Molly off and closes the gate behind them breaking the mechanism that opens it. She then grabs a fire axe and sets out looking for Michael. She finds him back in the school, and the two of them stalk each other, wounding each other with the axe and the various knives. Finally, Lori stabs Michael several times in the chest, sending him hurtling over a balcony into the mess hall. He seems dead, but Lori knows better. Uh, help arrives at the school. John and Molly have sent the police. Ronnie is alive, the bully having just grazed his head. Aha! He's alive. <laughs> 
Uh, Lori's wounds have been bandaged, and she sees the coroner carrying Michael's body on a stretcher. She knows ultimately he will return, and that she must make sure he's dead once and for all. So she steals a policeman's gun and forces the medics at gunpoint to load Michael into a nearby van. Lori takes off at high speed. While she's driving away, Myers begins to reanimate in the back and pulls himself out of the body bag. Lori slams on the brakes and sends him through the windshield, driving into him with the van. The van plunges over the hillside, and both Lori and Michael are thrown from it. Michael gets the worst of the deal. The van slams into his body and pins it against a falling tree. Lori finds the fire axe and approaches Michael, who is still alive but helpless. She calls to him, and he looks up at her, uh, mute but seemingly asking for help. Lori reaches out for him, the fingertips touching briefly, and she feels pity for Michael. Suddenly, her rage wells back up inside her, and she decapitates Michael with a single blow. Movie ends with the actual, they just ripped it from the original Halloween soundtrack mm-hmm. of the original John Carpenter score. They just put that back because they couldn't find it elsewhere without uh, having like bad mixing. So they just ripped it from the soundtrack. Um, <laughs> followed by a Creed song. Followed by a goddamn <laughs> Creed song yeah. in the credits. <laughs> well, you know, and that, um, I really, another, like, besides the axe thing, which I, which I love, I really love, and this is, and this is where I think the good part of the Kevin Williamson thing comes out. The like idea that even though like it's not as if she's actually lived through twenty years of endless Halloween sequels, she's just lived through Halloween one and two, but she still like tries to get ahead of it with with Michael, where she's like, yeah, yeah, he's in a body bag, but like, no, like, look, before this comes into a thing where he rises up and kills the ambulance driver and and gets away, why don't I just take the body? <laughs> myself i think that's like a really fun kind of meta moment of like no 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 we're not going to do the thing that's been done in like yeah. four yeah i got this i'm yeah, taking the yeah. reins that's 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 a very cool moment that again i don't know that the movie really like but mike, is, really mike is two steps ahead of her man he, <laughs> he got that paramedic <laughs> it's just like it's like when did that happen yeah like at what point did michael switch and also himself why with would paramedic? this paramedic like he wakes up in a body bag and just starts van. freaking out. He yeah. starts freaking yeah. out. And he's like, I got to attack this person that's <laughs> yeah. driving this van. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't. What is his mouth tape shut? Like, what, yeah. oh, no, the, no. They they I read that. Oh, yeah. They he, explained that Michael Myers uh, broke his larynx <laughs> so he couldn't talk. They're Mike, just Mike really is, writing Mike themselves thinking, out of a corner. Mike is thinking like fucking Mike is playing like eight dimensional chess yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a few alternate endings here. In one draft, the film's climax takes place at a big dance in the gymnasium. The floor of the gymnasium opens up to reveal a pool underneath. And he says, ever seen It's a Wonderful Life? It's a reference to that. Uh, Michael crashes the dance and Laurie impales him with a javelin. (laughs) He falls into the pool as the floor closes above him. Um, That's one ending. Another ending involved Laurie driving a bus from the school full of students trying to escape Michael Myers. He makes his way onto the bus. It crashes and teeters on the edge of a cliff. Lori manages to get all the students off the bus and leaps to safety as the bus falls hundreds of feet uh, with Michael dangling from the bumper to his death. Uh, another one we had ended with a helicopter decapitating Michael, which is a version of the wow. teetering bus scene. That was our Mission Impossible style ending, which was way too <laughs> pricey for dimension. But those all existed at one point on the page, which I love. Um, as I mentioned, Kevin Williamson was involved in various parts of this production although not directly credited he provided rewrites and character dialogue and helped make alterations and sketches of the script he also came up with the paramedic idea that is horrible and allowed uh mustafa khan to agree to make this movie the way it uh jamie lee wanted to make it um 
I'm trying to think. If what did you notice in the TV edit that was any anything? I mean, they're just like it's. It was from a time where you couldn't even say like you know shit or something on cable TV, which is not that long ago, I guess. So there's like bad dubbing of swears. They didn't do the bleep. They did the full on dubbing. You give me some. Uh, um, yeah, it, you know. So that was that's bad stuff. I mean, mostly I just noticed that like watching it in a kind of slightly bolderized TV version, you. It really pops out how like smarmy and annoying Kevin Williams's dialogue is. I mean, I like and I like Scream, and I even like I know he did last summer, and you know I don't think he's a I don't like I don't dismiss his work out of hand, but here it's just like all the characters talk like the kind of Dawson's Creek like it's not even like kids who talk like adults. It's like kids who talk like smarmy twenty three year old grad students like uh, you know sniping at each other well sniping at their parents with like undue precision instead of just being like inarticulate assholes and sort of you know being self-referential about like what kind of person they are and what kind of the relationship they have or just like being kind of it's just kind of over articulated in a way that really contrasts with what Deborah Hill and John Carpenter do in the first two movies in terms of how the teenagers talk and like how they relate to each other and it's very 90s it's very specifically late 90s like it just has that kind of it's not like super referential or anything but like the air of it is that same kind of like you know wb drama that thinks it's smarter than it is kind of dialogue it's it's like a kind of a turning point for movies and tv i think because like it's not you know even five or six years before this movie you wouldn't say oh that's kind of tv-ish dialogue but now it really does he does play as like kind of smarmy second rate hour-long drama you know riverdale grade like quasi self-referential dialogue without even like weird flourishes some of those shows will sometimes have that's what really popped out to me watching a tv that it, like felt the tv and it like felt right at home with the quality of this movie <laughs> damn go <laughs> off bro <laughs> um yeah i don't know what else i can say about this movie it was it's the shortest one in the franchise i've said that a few times uh how short it is but it really is the shortest one it's 86 no, minutes difference. <laughs> with credits but without credits it's like straight up 80 um roger ebert didn't like it <laughs> two stars um i think this movie has both aged well and not well like there are certain things about it i appreciate but I still can't I think you're right, Jesse, in that it's just a slasher movie that doesn't there's like it's like a slasher movie that's eighty percent WB drama or something. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. there's not enough of the good stuff for me to say that I love it, but I still have a soft spot for it because for me, uh Resurrection was the first one I saw in theaters. I remember mm -hmm. vividly getting parents bought tickets and we just got in and they didn't care. Uh seeing that one. But this is one of the first ones I remember seeing uh, at Blockbuster and getting and definitely watching a lot of. So I still really like it. And I, of course I like it more than six and probably I don't know if I like it more than four and five now because four and five at least have some kooky kills in them <laughs> more than this one. I, w I don't know. We'll do the ranking at the end of the franchise. But uh, uh, so what's your last take on Halloween H2O, Nick? Uh, after talking about it, after rewatching it this morning at 8 a.m., after watching it on VHS a million times, yeah. you still have a fondness for it? Do there's, you see the issues? Do you not see the issues? There's still a fondness for it, I think, for me. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. <laughs> I think... You've I got think, Unless due. I do another podcast. We should do this podcast again in 20 years, uh, you know, and uh, rediscuss it. Um, yeah, I, I feel like... 
I don't know if I don't think it's my favorite of the franchise, but I also I don't know. You know, I I I think it I think I might this is this is going to be controversial, but I think I might actually prefer it to the 2018 one to be to be quite I, I would have to rewatch it. I'm not sure. Yeah. I think I might disagree just because I love the way David Gordon Green shoots Michael Myers through uh-huh. like fractured glass and like it's yeah. all like art housey and I just don't think Steve Miner just the way Michael you looks would describe in this movie, it as art housey the way that the way that David Gordon like the particularly the way he frames Michael in a shot I would say is art housey yeah uh, but the movie itself is definitely not the movie is definitely more I mean it has I like that weird Danny McBride humor in it where like the, that that like kid being gay scene you remember that vaguely yeah. like there's just some weird stuff in it that I I don't know. You know what? I need more of that weird stuff. Yeah. To, to be honest with you, yeah. I feel like the Halloween movies. It's just like it's so meat and potatoes. Yeah. And I don't well, know. Well, you would love Halloween Six then, with all the cult of Thorn shenanigans. I, I gotta see it. Yeah. I haven't seen four, five, or six. It that's I'll its own that. trilogy, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I definitely I think they're, uh, you know, obviously. This one's better than the Rob Zombie ones for sure. So I haven't rewatched those since each movie's theatrical release, yeah. and I'm kind of looking forward to rewatching them for this. But I'm also kind of dreading it. But yeah. people really have come to like the second one as like some treatise on trauma. That like yeah. I don't know if that's <laughs> we're gonna like think that. I feel like Rob Zombie just doesn't have it in terms of film. Well, uh, he <laughs> has made text chainsaw massacre like five times he just yeah, keeps he exactly just, yeah he just keeps making the same movie yeah and i think he would even admit that yeah but uh it's crazy that he made two of these things and that they both made a lot of money i think I know. That's um nice. we'll be back with those ones in a few weeks next week is halloween resurrection which we'll talk all about that infamous beginning which the rest of the movie is not as bad as in my opinion i kind of like it maybe it's because it's the first one i saw in theaters Maybe it's because it's an inter- inter- internet-y movie, and I'm an internet kid. <laughs> it stars Ryan Merriman, I think, from Disney movies in it. Um, yeah, there's things to like about it. Buster Rhymes. We'll talk about that next week. Jesse, any final words on H2O here? No, I mean, I would just say, Nick, I think you're you're not alone. I think a lot of people do actually kind of prefer the. I think there are a subset of fans who prefer this one mm-hmm. to the David Gordon Green one. I think also for maybe some of the... Uh, reasons that Brett mentioned that it's kind of did some of this stuff first and maybe is a little less maybe people perceive it as being less pretentious about it mm-hmm. um so I, I i like i get it even though i i don't particularly like this one i feel like it it does it did i think it does deserve some credit for like the same way that i think Pierce brosnan's bond movies deserve some credit for actually trying out a lot of the stuff that they do in earnest in the daniel craig bonds this one does you know, to take a shot at some of the things that they then go in, go into more detail with for the 2018. So, you know, props for that, even though I don't like this movie. Right on. Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the new flesh podcast. You can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash new flesh podcast. Uh, give us a five star review on iTunes. If you want to give us a review that's less than that, I don't want to hear from you. Give <laughs> us five star reviews on iTunes. It helps us out. Uh, don't just do the rating. Give us a nice little review. It can be just a few words. It really helps everyone find the podcast. If you look, you will notice in quarantine, people are finding this podcast in droves and listening to the back catalog. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we will keep up the franchises even after Halloween, I promise you. Uh, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. We will be back next week with 2002's Halloween Resurrection. Stay tuned for that. Bye.
Thank you.